On All Souls' Night, I was awakened at an unknown hour by the knell of bells. Their monotonous and endless tolling brought to mind a legend that I heard not too long ago in Soria. I tried to fall back asleep. Impossible. Once prodded, the imagination is a horse that runs wild and cannot be reined in. To pass the time, I decided to write the story down, and indeed I did. At twelve noon, after the consumption of a good lunch, and with an after-meal cigar for accompaniment, this, of course, won't have much of an effect on the readership of El Contemporano, but I heard it in the very place where it originated, and, as I wrote, I sometimes glanced behind me with sudden fear when, smitten by the cold night air, the window of my balcony would crack. Make of it what you will. Here it goes, like the mounted horseman in a Spanish pack of cards. Punish the righteous. The curse of the devil. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. Curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the great shadow. I swear that you'll find And welcome to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight I am the King of Comics, and you, you, my friend, are the are the mercenary of murder. This is what I'm calling you tonight. <laughs> All right, I, I can live with that. Better than the keeper of the cheese, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you are the keeper, keeper of, of the, the cheese. cheese. Yeah. Dodge the marmosets. Anyway, <laughs> folks. Holy Shatner's toupee, it is time for another mm-hmm. Beyond Nashy episode. Tonight we bring you a look at a film that uh, actually has more connection to Nashy than your average Beyond Nashy cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a film that, uh, well, as we get into it, there's uh, there's some contention. You will find uh, Jacinto Molina's name up on the script. Mm-hmm. You guys a... actually get an on-screen credit. Exactly, exactly. But uh, he there wanted are many more. T- Let's just say that he wanted more. <laughs> yes, boy, did he want more. Uh, but we will dive into that uh, momentarily. Uh, just briefly, we wanted to uh, bring you up to speed on a few things, such as remember, you can always contact us at uh, the Gmail account. That's nashicast at gmail.com or come over and visit us on the Facebook page. Always glad to hear from everybody. Yeah, and it's in our uh, Gmail account. Our, our email has been, our uh, reader bag has really been uh, building up steam over the last few months. You know, I know. It's like we're, we're getting a lot of good stuff uh, to read and listen to, and so we'll be delving into that tonight. Correct, correct, correct. Uh, as we get into the mailbag at the end of the show, uh, we're going to have a new feature that's going to start, which uh, which basically uh, exists because I completely forgot about... Uh, I for- last episode, I completely forgot in the deluge of emails. I forgot one of them. I forgot one from Dan, our man in the field. And so uh, I joked back and forth with him, and he took it upon himself to just just record his, his, uh, email, his email comments and actually to add some uh, more juice to the show, which cool. uh, I'll just leave it at that, and that's something we'll get into right at the beginning of the mailbag section near the end of this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
we've just spent a little time kind of a pre-game here uh, figuring out exactly what we're going to do for the rest of the year on the show. Uh, would like to would like to let everybody know that uh, the sister podcast, the Bloody Pit that uh, that we do occasionally, uh, very occasionally, uh, is going to cause us. We're, we're going to take the month of November off from the Nashi Cast, so we're going to skip a month with the Nashi Cast. But that is going to allow us to uh, create a Bloody Pit episode. Uh, just the just Troy and myself, a very special Bloody Pit episode for November. Mm-hmm. So there won't be a Nashi Cast or Beyond Nashi in. November, but uh, there will be one in September, and mm-hmm. there will be one in October, and there will be one in December. So yep, yep. do not fret. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not taking December off this year. We're taking November. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the uh, next couple months we've got we've got figured out, and uh, we will let you know what's coming up next month uh, at the end of the show, and we may even go ahead and let you know what's coming up a couple of months in advance, just to let people get ahead of themselves or ahead of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, track down the film, yeah, see the films if right. they want to. And Go ahead and clear it with prepared. their family. Let their family know when <laughs> they cannot be available for any activities, any activities no weddings, whatsoever. no funerals, or anything because they've got to listen to Nashi Cast. And uh, do not schedule any surgeries. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> do not do not stand up when the ride is in motion. Mm-hmm. If you None get a really things. good great job offer that week, you just have to tell them to move on to somebody else because you just can't accept it. No, 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 no. Now, Not unless sh- you're allowed to listen to podcasts at work. Now, I'm going to say this right now. I'm going to strive to keep this episode from stretching to the three-hour mark, but looking at the mailbag and looking at the film that we're about to discuss and all the things that we we want to talk about and discuss about it, it might reach the three-hour mark, and if it does, yeah, I apologize. Probably going to be a bit long as far as uh, most Beyond Nashy episodes go, just because there is a lot to delve into with this one. Definitely. Have definitely. we said the title yet? No, not at all. Uh, well, if you've read the title of the file, I guess you would know, but <laughs> we do usually like to let everybody know. Tonight we're covering Cross of the Devil, or The Devil's Cross, from 1975, uh, a film that was co-written, at the very least, by Paul Nashy and directed by John Gilling. Uh, with a number of uh, well actors, definitely, and even uh, some cast members, the uh, the man who did the music is someone that yes, yeah, so definitely is good to see him return now. Yeah. But uh, this film has uh, several returning actors to that that you will recognize from past Nashy experiences, such as the lovely Emma Cohen, as yeah, well as for one scene we have uh, Eduardo, Eduardo Calvo, Calvo yeah. and uh, well, there are a few others that have popped up in other films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. most of the cast have quite extensive resumes, whether or not they worked with Nashi or not. In other cases, they still I mean, a lot of people there with long, long list of credits. Well, I was really quite surprised by um, one actor who I kind of recognized, but I mean, I couldn't put I couldn't put my finger on it, and I thought, where have I seen this guy? Where have I seen this guy? And it's the actor who plays. Uh, Enrique. Yes, the, uh, yes. I was, I'll I was agree like, with okay, you. I was like, I know him, I know him, I know him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was the bad guy in Django. He had yeah. a part in uh, the Four Musketeers, the 1974 Four Musketeers, mm-hmm. the Three mm-hmm. and Four Musketeers, Richard which Lester are one. Yeah. Wonder, wonderful stuff. Yeah. But uh, I've seen him in a few things, including uh, Yellow Hair in the Fortress of Gold, mm-hmm. uh, Hundra. No, Hundra, right. Yeah. I saw that he was um, in Hundra. Uh, the Shark Hunter from 1979, which mm-hmm. is another film that uh, I have a passing acquaintance with. Also, he uh, has a has a fairly prominent role in uh, Baba's House of Exorcism, mm-hmm. the uh, the alternate version of Lisa and the Devil. Yeah, and uh, so I knew that guy, and I knew him. I'm like, man, I know, I know, I know, I know. Oh yeah, guy. definitely. I saw him too. I, I had the same reaction as you. It was just like, I know, I've seen this guy in something before. And at first, I assumed it was other Nashy films, but then yeah, looking, I just realized I'd seen him in other. Well, I'd seen I've seen him also in like Knife uh, Knife of Ice, and um, oh man, I think uh, Bad Man's River. 
Oh, Maniac Mansion, which is uh, which I still haven't seen, but I which is murder murder mansion. Murder, we we yeah. I used to talk about that a lot just because I really really enjoy that film. It's uh, it's pretty damn cool little Spanish horror film from nineteen seventy two. But um, he's one of those guys who uh, well we'll we'll we need to get into the film. And I, t- I tell you what, we'll we'll skip the usual pleasantries about uh, well let's 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 relate it to just a, a couple of things. Any, anything interesting catching your eye here lately? I know you've been watching. Uh, uh, Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful, thanks thanks to you and you know, helping me out to get those episodes. Yeah, Penny <laughs> Dreadful on Showtime. is uh, really enjoyed that first season. It's a short season, just eight episodes. They've apparently renewed it for the second season. Uh, I was happily, uh, kind of pleasantly surprised at that. But the subject matter, I wasn't sure that it was the kind of thing that would draw enough viewers. But uh, um, fortunately, you know, it, it did, obviously, for them to renew it. But yeah, if you like... Uh, Victorian things that are set Victorian era and like a lot of Victorian era type of characters from horror literature and such it throws in a lot of of that type of thing there and it's uh, building up a kind of a nice storyline lots of nice surprises great actors so oh yeah yeah, it's very very well done I'm I'm, I'm, it's so funny for me to uh, I I really enjoy it as well I think it's fantastic and it's one of those shows that I think started out good and then got better and better progressively Mm -hmm. as it went Mm -hmm. along through the Mm -hmm. eight episodes and uh, it's just really great to see Timothy Dalton in such a juicy role again. Mm-hmm. And Eva Green really honestly deserves oh, some kind of freaking yeah. award oh, for this show. Gosh, there's, she's fantastic and it really There was is. a stretch of two episodes there where I, I, honestly, she was doing things that I can't imagine most actresses having the, Man, the, the sheer stuff. force yeah. of will to yeah. do. Yeah. Just a just an all around excellent excellent thing. It's it's uh, it reminds me it reminds me strongly of the uh, wonderful comic books, the League of Extraordinary yeah. Gentlemen, because yeah. the same idea is there where they're taking classic literature and twisting it and blending it and putting their own spin on it, yeah. and uh, that's that's very fantastic. Of course, they made such a crappy film. <laughs> I was going to say if these if the people that made this show had been turned loose on Alan Moore's and and if they had been able to yeah. do. Then, then they could have possibly been a good adaptation instead of the abomination that it was. Oh, I agree. <laughs> and and what's 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 amazing about this kind of stuff is that um, this is not you know this this is just the latest permutation of this kind of thing because there's an ongoing uh, graphic novel series called Flesh and Blood by uh, oh, is that Robert to, Robert Tennell yeah. and uh, Neil Volks, which it, which is also this kind of thing where they take uh, the classic Universal and Hammer character you know Universal. Mm-hmm. The, the characters used by Universal Horror, by Hammer Horror, Dr. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein and, and uh, Dracula and mm-hmm. all, all those types of characters and uh, blend them together into a, a, a whole new different type of thing. And uh, Flesh and Blood by Robert Tonell and Neil Volks, if you've not sit, sought those out, there's three volumes of it so far and they are fantastic. Of course, I'm not just pimping it because I know Robert Tonell and Neil Volks. <laughs> yeah, they they actually are worthwhile. They do a great job on this. I mean, with Robert Tonell, of course, we both loved his... Uh, Oh, uh, what is it? The, oh, the Black uh, the, Forest. The Black Forest. Those two Black Forest uh, books. And the Wicked West. Uh, yeah, oh, and also the, the Terry Sharp uh, thing he oh, did, I which know, was I fantastic. Uh, and then he also did that great uh, ghost uh, graphic novel that was kind of a, had a little bit of a Bob-esque feel. Uh, yeah, yeah, Sight Unseen. Sight Unseen, which, uh, yes, which is very really Euro good. horror yeah. and feel. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, I talked to, uh, when I talked to Bob back in, uh, back in the summer, early in the summer, uh, apparently that's got an option. That's going to be turned into a film. Silent nice. Scene is headed nice. to the big screen. Nice. I don't know if it'll end up end up with that same title, but yeah, that's uh, that's on its way to the big screen, which is very good because that thing was built to be a hell of a scary movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, what I've been doing lately is I've, I've decided in August to try to uh, uh, delve into my collection a little bit and watch some Godzilla and some Santo films. Oh, yeah. Good, good combination. Now, Santo and Godzilla never made a movie together. No, no. And for that, we all That is week. a shame. That is yes. A shame. yes. One, and, uh, one can always dream. <laughs> one can always dream. So, <laughs> so uh, I've been uh, trying to watch, uh, and in some cases rewatch, 
some films that I haven't watched in a long time. I've uh, I've been watching a couple of the uh, the Godzilla films from the '90s, uh, Godzilla mm-hmm. vs. King Ghidra, uh, and uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra, the '91, '92 films. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for Santo, uh, Santo vs. the Zombies, which uh, is a, a Haitian zombie thing, not flesh eaters, Haitian zombies from 1961 which was a blast Santo and the Blue Demon against the Monsters from 1970 oh, that's, a, that's a classic well that was in color and it's like yeah. once they got to color it's they got really sloppy about no, they, about just... trying to paper over the gigantic plot holes and silliness <laughs> within the Santo yeah. universe uh, and it, but it's still just tons of fun sure. it's just that it's not yeah. I, I can call Santo vs. the Zombies actually a fun good movie mm you know, fun monster movie, but I can't call Santa and the Blue Demon versus the Monsters good, but good, I can call just, it damn fun. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, same, 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 I can kind of say about the Santo versus the Strangler from 1965, which is a black and white film. It's one that, uh, uh, it was a rewatch for me. I had, I had, I had already watched this one several years back uh, and I'd forgotten just how padded it is. It's like 75 minutes in length and a full 20 minutes of that are song and dance numbers. Yeah, that, there are those two that yeah reached a certain point there with yeah that that the the musical padding there yeah. But uh, oh, and uh, today I watched uh, Godzilla versus Gigan, which I'll be honest, I thought I had seen before. Oh, really? But as I got that. into it, I realized I'd never watched it. And uh, it's 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 an it's one of those it's it's seventies, isn't it? Or oh, yeah, very, very much. So. And it's it's very much in that vein the that vein of the uh, the late sixties, early seventies Godzilla films where I can't ever call them good. No. Those are not good, but it's very colorful, very fun, and yeah. very. It, it's entertaining in a silly way, and I would never, never uh, say bad things against it. Well, not only were those the ones that were the most aimed for kids, but they were also at a time when the budgets for Japanese films were going way, way, way down, down because yeah. television had really taken over then, and so there was not a whole lot of money being poured into, uh, and what money there were, were giving to films were pretty much four films aimed at children during that time, and right. and they have a soft spot for me too, because obviously I was still young enough to to appreciate those films, because Godzilla was a good guy in most of those films, and that was good for me as a kid, you you know, I, yeah. I, most of the first films I saw were the ones where he gets uh, killed in them all, where he's the, you know, where he's the the villainous or the enemy monster, and you know, and so the, the 70s films, the late 60s and 70s films, as a kid, that was you know you, he was great because he was the he was the good guy in there, so he would he would usually triumph in those films, and so as you yep. know, the kid, that was that's what you wanted to see. So, yeah. well, um, before we uh, before we take a break, I would like to jump in here, and we're gonna we're gonna play uh, one thing that we're not saving till the end of the show is the message we have from uh, Mr. Selena. She of Horror Rises from Spain. I wanted to go ahead and put that in here at the beginning of the show because she is helping us out, or at least helping me out with the sad, sad pronunciations mm-hmm. of Spanish names because uh, as, as enthusiastic and as much as, th- as enthusiastic as I am about Spanish horror and Spanish mm-hmm. cinema and in, in its various permutations, I definitely do not have the native's uh, knack for mm-hmm. pronunciating mm-hmm. Spanish names. As a matter mm-hmm. of fact, when you are being made fun of by someone who is a German speaker natively for how badly you pronounce Spanish names, you know you <laughs> suck. And I know I suck. And I'll never claim to be getting anything more uh, than roughly uh, 20% accuracy on the Spanish names. But hey, I like this stuff. I'm not trying to be insulted. Luckily, everybody knows that. But uh, what we have here is Elena giving us uh, some information. She sent us a nice MP3 letting us know, uh, first of all, how to pronounce several of these people's names. Uh, Some of, uh, like the the director of uh, Blackthorn, which I talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few other names like that, as well as dropping some knowledge on uh, the 
two. This ongoing controversy about, that has yeah. stirred up over the last about the uh, who Blanca who Estrada. is Blanca Estrada, yeah. Yeah, which is which is very nice. There are two Estrada ladies, and it turns out they are cousins. Mm-hmm. So uh, hang on, we'll let we'll let Mistress Elena tell you about it. Hello, guys. How are you? This is Elena from Spain, and I have just listened to the Ozone Leaders. Nasikas about uh, El Asesino está entre los trece, you know, the murder is on the 13. And uh, I've been listening to different things you have mentioned, and I felt that uh, I have to add some things that you may not know. As, okay, you are not in Spain and you haven't grown with all this culture. The first thing I have to say is that uh, I love, uh, today I love Rod and also his Spanish pronunciation. Um, I have to say the name of the director is Javier Aguirre, you know. I know these are very, very difficult sounds for a non-Spanish speaker. But uh, it's Javier, okay? Aguirre. <laughs> it's terrible for someone who is not Spanish speaker. Okay. And secondly, you mentioned uh, a director. Well, more than a director, it's a writer. It is called Mateo Gil. Again, you know the sound of the. <laughs> so Mateo Gil, not Gil. Um that has uh, worked a lot together with uh, Amenabar. Um, okay, he's the writer of different movies such as uh, Agora, or for example, Sin Sight, or Vanilla Sky, Nadie Conoce a Nadie, Nobody Knows Anybody or Nobody, I don't know what's the correct translation, and also Thesis. Um, apart from working with uh, Alejandro Amenaba, okay, we have again the <laughs> in the name. He directed uh, Black Thorned, that is an amazing movie that was made in America. I think he tried to to move to America in order to continue making cinema as many of uh, Spanish director has made. I don't know what's um, going on, on in his life nowadays, but. Um, this is the late, um, the last movie is made, Blackthorn, and also he directed one of uh, Películas para no dormir, movies or films to keep you away, uh, that's called Regreso a Moira, that I have to say, that's the most boring one of the back, um, <laughs> and that's all, he's, um, he, he, he's completely lost, but his main work has always been with um, Alejandro Menabar. Uh, a director started so well, but now... Okay, I don't want to go into that. Okay, the second scene that's, uh, that you mentioned, another guy... Okay, it's not another guy, but uh, a very important director that is called... Listen, Rod, this is for you. You know that I love you, okay? Joaquin Luis Romero Marchen that uh, he was one of the biggest spaghetti western, Spanish spaghetti western director 
Uh, well, he did a lot of different things. You know that in Spain there is a place in Almería where we, we you have all the settings for all the spaghetti westerns that were made there, and you can visit there. But uh, he, he, this guy is very important because he directed a TV series that is called Curro Jiménez, and it's about, I don't know, a bandolero uh, in Sierra of Spain. It's a very interesting, it's a cool TV series here in Spain. Um, that's all about this guy. And now, uh, let me focus into something that I think you are, you and the listeners, and even me, I have to check it, are confusing. And uh, you are confusing two girls. One is Blanca Estrada, and the other one is Susana Estrada. Both are relatives, they are cousins, but they are totally different, okay? Blanca Estrada, Blanca Estrada is the one appearing in the Kilma, you know, the movie you covered before. Also, she is one of the main actors of A Candle for the Devil, Nightmare Inn, uh, as you call it. She's also on the third Blind Dead movie, on the third, The Ghost Galleon, okay? And... See, we are talking, remember, about Blanca Estrada, and she appeared in different movies, including El Franco Tirador. Ah, okay, this is difficult even for me. El Franco Tirador, you know, the one with Paul Nassi, the same as El Caminante, also with Paul Nassi. And the, lady, uh, the last thing she did was uh, Stories to Keep Your Way, you know, the TV series. After... Taking uh, part into, you know, J.P. Simon, Mysterio and Life of los Monsters. She got married to different guys. Um, she did little things after that. Mm. Nowadays she's living in, in Malaga, but she's not working for, for the cinema, okay? So this was Blanca Estrada that was born in 1950, okay, in Asturias. And then we have the other girl, that is Susana Estrada, that was born in 1949, <laughs> also in Asturias. And that is part of the Night of the Seagulls, you know, the fourth movie of The Blind Dead. She also was a kind of cool actress for what is called the Stape, you know, these uh, soft porn movies that appear in Spain after uh, Francisco Franco dead. Um, this is one of the muses of the transition times from the dictatorship to the democracy. And she appears in... Okay, Jorge Graus, Las Trastienda, uh, she also worked with Maria Jose Cantudo, etc. And this one appears in the fourth <laughs> of the Blind Death movies. Also, she appears in El Jovencito Drácula and others. She is still working on different things, on different TV shows, not very important, but also short movies. 
and that's uh, ah and also she had a kind of um how, how can i call it i don't know where people write letters or call in order to have uh, any to, to receive an advice from from a person in this case he was advising about sex on spanish state television if i remember well Okay, so remember there are two different girls. Well, nowadays <laughs> they are women. Okay, and now last thing. Okay, this is taking so long. My God, I, I hope no nobody's falling asleep. Okay, and now I at the end of the of the movie. Oh, of the movie. What I'm talking about at the end of the podcast. You see, this is totally raw. I know they're leaving. Okay, so you're covering the cross of the devil, La Cruz del Diablo, from 1975. A project that uh, was supposed to be started by Paul Nazi, but that finally he was not there. Um... Okay, this is complicated because we don't know how far Nazi work on it or not. But I have to say that this is a terrible movie. What are you calling this? <laughs> okay, you... Okay, let me explain myself. Apart from the mistakes in the movie and that is terrible, terrible, boring. It is supposed to be based on uh, Gustavo Adolfo Becker, listen, wrote Gustavo Adolfo Becker, uh, you know, legends. Gustavo Adolfo Becker is a romantic writer from Spain, you know, slate romanticism writer, and what he did was rewriting or writing legends from, from Spain. In the movie, they try to create the perfect mixture of all the legends. But oof, I think none, <laughs> none was covered correctly. If uh, there was uh, a Horizons from Spain episode, sorry for you know the commerce, <laughs> but that contained uh, some of the of his poems read by my love, beloved um, Dan Fisher. Um, so, you know, you can do it. But uh, the problem is that uh, none of his legends have been translated. Okay, I remember well. No, I remember. Uh, La Tarnia um, a Fantastic Magazine, remember, that uh, Mirek published uh, number one, include one of the legends by Berkers in, in, by Berkers, sorry, in English. But the rest are only in, in Spanish. So, ah, ah, good luck with that. Um, and that's all. I'm not going to talk <laughs> more because that's too much. Um, you know, I love you all. You do such a great work. And that's all. Love you. Kissy, kissy. Bye. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. I, don't, I don't know about you, but I could hear, I could listen to Elena roll her R's all night long. <laughs> uh, yes, but I am terrible at it, which is... Oh, uh, yes. I found, discovered that too in trying to... Uh, I realized that I've forgotten how to, I don't know how to roll Mars anymore. <laughs> it's, 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 I used I, to be I, able to. But. I can roll them, but man, it takes, it takes concentration. It does, it does. It's, it, it's, I find it easier to, to speak 
French names, French things, and I don't know if it's just because I took you know two or three years of French when I was younger, all of which I've completely lost as I've gotten older, <laughs> of course. But yeah, the the some of those there there are completely alien sounds to the English speaker that are comprised of the Spanish language. Pieces of the Spanish language just do not come naturally to us English yeah. natives. I, I think we've been doing a little better about with the J sound, pronouncing it with an H sound, but we've not been getting the so we got to yeah, throw that in as well. Like we've been saying. Julia Sally, but I guess it's actually Julia Sally would be. The... Yeah, I, man, I guess so. But see, that's the thing is I've heard, and I don't know what vowel follows the J to give it, because I don't know that all of them make, I don't know that all of them mm-hmm. comprise that sound, that, that yeah. who. Well, that... it sounded sort of like she was doing the same sound for Gil, G-I-L, what we would call Gil. It was almost like the same, but it's probably Here. still different. It's yeah. more like a. Hugh or something. But yeah, with, like, with, 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 with more phlegm in the back of the Yeah, well, I know we're both coated right now with, 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 with like, <laughs> yeah, but uh But yeah. as 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 always, nice to, to to get some more clarification on the two estradas. Mm-hmm. But um, still no clear I mean I I was I didn't get who still don't do we still know who Eva Miller is though. <laughs> that, that, that well might Eva Miller another... was apparently a, a, a stage name or a, mm-hmm. a screen name uh, pseudonym used by one of them or both or both so, <laughs> well the thing is is you know how imdb is There's oh it's no telling how many yeah. it's probably takes those two actresses especially the fact that they're spanish actress, actresses it probably takes them and totally gives them cross you know it's, yep. it's you know so that but but yes that was great though i do i do appreciate that was fascinating i do appreciate elena clearing it up on the fact that they were cousins and both had very distinctive careers on, on each, you know. There and and it's funny because <laughs> similar but different. Well, because if yeah. I understood right, they each were in a Blind Dead film too. Is if I heard that right, and now it's it's it almost sounded like one of them was in Ghost Galley and the, then one of them was in Night, Night of the, the Seagulls. Seagulls. But maybe I misunderstood. Maybe it's just one of them was in Night of the Seagulls and maybe the. But they were both in horror movies, and yes. so that one in itself would get really confusing if you're. But only you know, one of them played the Kilma character in two separate movies, which were exactly. two different characters. But and 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 one of them was a sex therapist, apparently, which is interesting. Or a sex consultant, which is intriguing to mm. say the extreme least. Yeah. But once again, Elena, thank you. You are always welcome to send in an MP3 yeah. and correct my sad pronunciation. And there is no. Uh, she didn't gloss over her feelings about the film we're doing tonight. So we will we will see what our feelings. Uh, true, are true. I, the, the the I'm gonna go ahead and. Uh, I'm not going to bury too much. I'll, I'll just say this. I have mixed feelings about the film because mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, well, many different subjects that we will cover as we go yes. on. But we'll take a quick break now. Um, come back and start our discussion of... La Cruz del Diablo. Yeah. Ooh, we want to go all spanish yeah, well, Just right. once. In the rest of the film, it should be known as The Devil's Cross or Cross the Devil. What are we going with here tonight? Uh, I went with, let's go with Cross the Devil. Cross of the Devil. All right. And then we'll watch me end up calling it The Devil's, Devil's Cross. Devil's Cross. <laughs> like 83 times. All right, all right Back in a moment, folks. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. 
Hammer, wasn't that an 80s cop show on ABC with David Raish? This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that was Sledgehammer. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Cross of the Devil, 1975. Let us first start with the genesis of this story, mm-hmm. or of this film, uh, are a couple of, uh, actually three different stories. Yeah, it's as convoluted uh, as the, the film itself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, it's uh, well, I'll argue the convolution of the story, but uh, the, of the film anyway, but uh, yeah. there are three different stories that um, Paul Nashie claims he took from, barred from, and wanted to kind of blend into a screenplay. The main one being one called Spirit Mountain. All of these stories are by the uh, Spanish poet and writer. Uh, here's where I start slaughtering Spanish names, mm-hmm. people. Hang on. And yes, yes, I know I just heard Elena properly pronounce it, but that was a few minutes ago, and my brain kicks all of that information right out as soon as I blink. So, the name of the author was Gustavo Adolfo Becker. I think that's pretty close. It's close, but I know it, which one. It's changed to Becker in the film, B-E-C-K-E-R, which is close, but you know, not quite there. It's but. close. It, it's close. But um, luckily, I was able to read an English translation of his short story, Spirit Mountain, luckily uh, uh, translated yeah. by uh, by Merrick Lipinski, who we're all grateful for, yep. in the first issue of his magazine, Laternia Fantastique Internationale. International. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Hey, there you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try. Well done. Yeah. But uh, it's wonderful, and uh, if uh, I'm sure you heard me uh, read the uh, first couple of paragraphs of that translation at the beginning of this podcast, and uh, sh- uh, Spirit Mountain is a, is a short story, but it is the crux. It is the centerpiece of the screenplay mm-hmm. for Cross of the Devil. Which is very interesting. Well, they call it Mountain of Souls in the film, you know, but uh, right but, yeah. instead of Spirit Mountain, Mountain, Mountain of Souls, Souls yeah. which is you know perfectly fine. Yeah, I think it's a 
reasonable translation. Now, before we get into a discussion of the film proper, I want to go ahead and, and this is something I do generally later on in the discussion, but I want to go ahead and get this out there in the middle of everything. Uh, this is uh, some of uh, Nashi's words about uh, this film. He says, The marvelous idea occurred to me of bringing the legends, uh, legends of Gustavo, Gustavo Adolfo Becker to the screen. Becker represented to me the best poet in Spanish history, and furthermore, they were, they were wonderful Spanish tales of terror. I chose three legends, the Cross of the Devil, the, uh, the Spirit Mountain, and um, another that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Sorry to disappoint, folks. Uh, and I wrote a very complicated script. The actors I had in mind for the film were Peter Cushing, Samantha Egger, uh, Barbara Steele, and James Franciscus. I had already that would have been a good cast. <laughs> that would have been an amazing cast, and one he would have never been able to assemble. No, himself. no, but it's you know, <laughs> uh, the man I, dreamed big, and then we got yeah, big yeah. for that. He says, uh, "I have already, I had already contacted some of them, and they were willing to do the film." When Enrique Heroa, I'm sorry, Enrique Herreros, an associate of Juan Jose Porto, uh, these are producers came to me, he told me that in order for him to be able to move ahead with the picture, he needed to have a contract in which I yielded the script to him. After some doubts, I signed the script over to him, which immediately left me on the outside. John Gilling then threw me off the film, and so I was left without a script, without a role, and without a film. I brought a lawsuit against them and won two things. One, they would have to pay me for the script, and two, that my name would appear in the credits. The later I regretted since they destroyed the script. The film, unfortunately, is one of my major frustrations. Even today, I would give anything to be able to bring Beckier's, Beckier's stories to the screen, and it's possible that I may yet attempt to do so. Um, that was in 1992, and, or 91, pardon me, and let's just say, unfortunately, he never, ever did get a yeah. chance to. Yeah. Now, <laughs> that being said, um, let's discuss the director of the film, John Gilling. Mm -hmm. John Gilling is a, uh, someone who I have a lot of respect for because Me he too. directed some films some that films. I really enjoyed. Uh, several for Hammer. Mm -hmm. uh, one that was not for Hammer, but people, a lot of people seem to think was a Hammer film. The Flesh and the Fiends right. from 1960. Uh, Served Peter Cushing, which is why a lot of people think it's a Hammer film, but it's mm -hmm. very good. Uh, yet another retelling of the, uh, the Body Snatchers, uh, the, the uh, Burke and Hare storyline. Uh, it's a good film and one that I do mm -hmm. recommend. Yeah, I like it too. Uh, pretty interesting little. Uh, he he started directing actually in the uh, the the late forties. There's a there are a lot of interesting titles in his mm -hmm. in his background, and I'm not caught up with all of them. But I did enjoy the Gamma People to a certain degree from '56, uh, the Flesh and the Fiends from '60, mm -hmm. uh, Shadow of the Cat. I still have not seen Fury at Smuggler's Bay was uh, another Peter Cushing film. Mm -hmm. Pirates of, Shadow of the Cat was his first Hammer film. Pirates of Blood Rivers another Crimson Blade Crimson Blade which I thoroughly enjoy. Uh, the Brigand, Brigand of Kandahar, which yeah. I enjoy. Uh, Blood Beast from Outer Space, also known as The Nightcaller from Outer Space, which is a pretty darn good little film. Bizarre title, I'll grant you. But that's a film starring John Saxon and a few other notables. Mm -hmm. And then he did uh, two that he's most yeah, remembered for, for Hammer. He did it back-to-back. -back, the Cornwall, two, two, the two films uh, that take mm -hmm. place in Cornwall, 
uh, The Plague of the Zombies and The Reptile. Mm-hmm. Both very, very good films. Really like he also them. did The Mummy Shroud, which is mm-hmm. not, a, not a mummy film that a lot of people enjoy or, or, or mm-hmm. like very much, although I get a kick out of it because sure. I'm a freak. <laughs> and then after that, he did a lot of uh, directing for television in Britain for The Saint, The Champions, and Department S before his final film, which is the movie we discussed tonight, yep. Cross of the Devil. Now, John Gilling is a director I have a lot of respect for because, like I say, when I can go down the list of his credits and name you ten films of his that I've enjoyed, mm-hmm. obviously That's... I think pretty highly of the guy's work. Yeah, same here. But he did not, shall we say, get along with Nashi. As yeah. a matter of fact, I don't know if got along is the correct, correct word. I'm not even sure they met until after this whole debacle was over and yeah, done years, with. Yeah, years later. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, but yeah, they didn't actually meet on this. But uh, but uh, yeah, his, his, let's just say his... Uh, uh, we've got a regular, what is it, Rashomon going here or whatever. No, <laughs> right, it's like right. it's uh, his take on the events are considerably different from... From Nash's, that's for sure. So luckily, and thanks to uh, the intervention of, uh, one of our one of the fans of the podcast, Mike, I got this information earlier this week, and I'm going to read this out. This is uh, from an interview with John Gilling that takes, that's from uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, actually, it appears uh, it's appeared in a couple of issues of Little Shop of Horrors, but this one is specifically from ep- uh, issue number 23, focusing on the Cornwall Classics, Plague of the Zombie, and the Reptile, where they get around to asking about uh, the uh, film he made in Spain in 1975. He says that uh, after many years of hard work, which are becoming less satisfactory than it used to be, and I'm assuming there he's talking about uh, working exclusively in television. television right. um, I really felt I merited a nice long holiday, uh, not that I was retiring, but I only believed Spain would offer me a new lease on life. He was living in Spain since 1970, doing things I'd been wanting to do for years without ever finding the time for them. My stepdaughter, who was acting as my agent at the time, learned of a Spanish producer intending to promote a film from the legends of the great Spanish poet, Becure. I liked the idea and was given an English translation of a Paul Nashi script to read, which was a hopelessly, which was a hopelessly developed, completely amateurish job of no more than 15 pages. And let's see where <laughs> there's a major contradiction right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I don't think that's yeah that those two those two are not meshing. It involved people sitting around a table and chatting themselves to death. This is Paul Nashi. I really I, yeah. yeah. I researched a little on the author, largely from the Spanish Encyclopedia. Totally remodeled and expanded the main theme, which was then retranslated into Spanish. So now he's saying that he had a 15 page script that was boring mm-hmm. and he reworked it. Mm-hmm. They ask, did you read any of Bakir's stories before making the picture? He says, no. Uh-huh. Uh, on what ground did you get to work your work permit for uh, to do the film? Um, and then he relates that. He says, Paul, they asked, Paul Nashi was very disappointed that you didn't offer him the leading part in The Cross of the Devil. John Gilling says, I could in no way accept him as the leading man. He simply isn't one. Instead, I said he could have the secondary role, which was the part of the devil, and seemed to be very much in his vein. As he turned my as he turned my proposition down, I chose uh, Marciella. Mar- I can't pronounce this actor's name. I hate this. Marciella, who is a far superior artist anyhow, and is regarded as one of Spain's greatest character actors. Uh, is it true you initially wanted to cast Peter Cushing and Gina Lola Brigida? Gilling says Gilling says that's right. I tried to get Peter in the role originally, but I don't think he liked the idea. And I actually met Lola, Brig- Lola Brigida, who was busy setting up as a photographer, that's her profession now, and wasn't available consequently. As a substitute, I picked Carmen Sevilla, a lovely artist who spoke a little English and was very easy to direct. She was absolutely right for the role she played in the film. Okay. Yes, yes. 
Okay, first couple of thoughts about this. As much as I dearly, dearly love the man, I have a hard time picturing Peter Cushing at 19, in 1975 playing the main, playing this particular character. It's not that he wouldn't have done his great usual Peter Cushing job. I just don't see him no, no, no. as this younger writer character. That's just it. I don't either, and I don't think that that's who he would have been cast as. So, so I, think oh, he I can see other cast. roles. I can see other roles he could have been I cast I could see him, see him being cast. I could see Peter Cushing playing the Enrique role. Definitely, definitely. Okay, and yeah. I could see uh, Nashi definitely playing the Del Rio role. Oh, I could see Caesar do. Del Rio. Oh, I could do. Which would have been actually perfect casting, I think. Oh yeah. But what I don't see is all of this BS that he's talking about, where he's denigrating the script that he had yeah. in front of him. Yeah. Now I don't know if what he was looking at, since he's apparently not a Spanish speaker, or maybe he didn't read Spanish. Maybe someone did a fifteen-page translation synopsis, yeah, or synopsis possibly. of the script. Maybe, yeah. Which is a very strong possibility. Mm-hmm. But I can't buy that Gilling didn't read any of the original short stories the script was based on, and rewrote the script. That mm-hmm. doesn't that doesn't mm-hmm. fly because. If you read the, tr- the, the the just that one story, Spirit Mountain, and watch this film, they're very, very, very close. Well, I believe he goes on to say in the in that interview, doesn't he, that the the way that he basically got the the the, the film got to direct the film was they there was I believe there was an insistence on the part of his agent that that if they were going to finance the film that he was the Bakir expert and that he. Uh, and so that and, and and so that he had to be the one to direct it, and and he admits in the interview that he 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 knew nothing about Bakir. I know, I never it's, read it's, it, but but he yeah, just exactly. Said, so it's one of these things where you're not really sure exactly how all this went down. You just know that you kind of, I mean, and not just because yes, of course, this is the Nashi cast, mm-hmm. but having gone through as many of Nashi's films at this point as we have, which is forty some odd of yeah. them, you get a sense for. His writing style, mm-hmm. his directing style, and the way mm-hmm. in w- the way in which he tells stories. Mm-hmm. And so, when I watch this movie, this script feels like a Paul Nashi script. It does, even down the little details about the uh, the writer being a, a, a con- um, habitual smoker of hashish. Right. It sounds like the kind of touch that Nashi would put in there, especially the fact that it's not it's not over dramatized or not over harped on. That it's just kind of a it's mentioned, but it's and it's it's a thing that could explain some things that happen in the film. Right. It's a very nice little kind of possible MacGuffin, you know, that's put in there. Is like, is this really something that is it bigger? Is it more important than it's made out to be? But either way, it's a character trait that's a very much something you could see Paul Nashi doing Adding to the story. I will, I will say that like okay, from John Gilling's point of view, being a British Hammer film director. I can I, one thing I will understand is if he was not familiar, had not seen much of Paul Nash's work, and looked at him, and and I could see why he might look at him and say, "This is not a this is not a leading man." You know, we know that Paul Nash right. had established himself as a leading man, and we know that he can be quite good in those roles. But we've always said, obviously, that physically he was a little unusual for what your classic horror or classic movie hero. Would be would be cast as let's face it the guy who's cast as the as the writer in the movie is much more in the oh, kind yeah, of style yeah, of a of a leading leading definitely, man definitely and if you look at Hammer films I mean the only actor they ever had as a leading man who came close to resembling Paul Nashi's physique would be Oliver Reed otherwise you know True. their leading men were always more of the style I mean unless it was especially their romantic leads were always much more of the style of this this fellow who did the guy who is that ultimately played the the main character right. Well, the thing that 
the thing is, I think the film, as it stands, is very well cast. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. I really, I really I mean, do. Yeah, the guy that ended up playing that role, Del Rio, is fantastic, I think. Exactly. I think, he, I think he's a phenomenal actor. But I agree with you that Nashie would have been, I would love to see Nashie in that role as well. Well, the, the, the fellow who plays the role, uh, Aldolfo, 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 no, it's, yeah. it, the first name is not, and I'm still screwed it up, <laughs> Aldolfo, 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 or Marcialic, 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 let's try Marcialic, Marcialic, that's cool, uh, he passed away in 2002, but he is very good as Cesar, uh, Cesar Del Rio, Mm-hmm. Who is uh, kind of the uh, secretary slash personal assistant to uh, Enrique in the film? He has a very uh, let's just say he can very easily look evil, and he is a very smooth and commanding actor yeah. when he when he is given some nice dialogue to chew on. Yeah. One of the things that I love about his portrayal is he never overplays it in places where he could have, where somebody yes. could have, because you know from the minute you see this guy, you don't trust him. I mean, you tell he's I mean this is a sinister looking guy. But he never, you know, there's he never leers, he never chew, he never really chews the scenery. Right. Even when he's being menacing, it's always a, something understated, a little bit there, you know, where he's he's yeah. I, I love the way I think he did a great job. I think he, I think he's fantastic. Uh, the sad thing is, I've looked at his resume. I don't know anything. I don't know that mm-hmm. I've seen any, a single other film that yeah, he's been in. Uh, what Gilling said he's like one of the. Or was it? Or was I'm sorry? Was it? Where did we hear that? One of it was great, Gilling. It was Gilling who said he was one of the great. Character actors, character actors of Spain, and to be honest, his his credits go all the way back to 1947, 1952. Mm. Uh, so he's been at you know by the time he makes this film, he's been in the industry for twenty some odd years, mm. and he's got enough credits here. He works in both film and in television across you know mm. across the sixties and seventies. There's nothing that we recognize, nothing that you recognize nothing that I recognize at all. Mm-hmm. But uh, just from his performance in this film, the guy is is definitely good. He is. But uh, let's uh, let's break down the script. Let's break down the. Uh, the, the plot of this and then mm-hmm. start going through some specifics because sure, sure. uh, I don't know that we want to go point by point through this film and we mm-hmm. kind of want to glance glancingly go through it mm-hmm. uh, I have extensive notes but I don't want to harp too long on what we've got going on here because I think the story is very good and this is a movie that is available out there <clears throat> on the special, the antenna, special antenna with uh, fan subs there is yeah. no English language version of this film so right. you're kind of at the whim of uh, the fan sub version that is out there and it's not that hard. To, it's not that hard to find, from what I can tell. The, the subs were done uh, back in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, so they've been floating around, floating around out there in various uh, places. Mm-hmm. I'll say. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Cross the Devil is something that you can run across without too much trouble if you know where to point your internet. And uh, I do recommend it. And that's that's just how I'll start this off with. I do recommend checking this out if you're a, if you're a Nashi fan mm-hmm. or even if you're just a Gothic horror fan. I think. Uh, it rewards the it, re- it rewards uh, viewers who have a tendency to enjoy that type of film. This may be the point where Elena cuts off our podcast. You know, that's she, bad, bad, you she know. may well, and and, and, and that that's, and that's perfectly to... fine. That's perfectly fine. She's wrong. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. Let's let let's start this off. The the I, I kind of like this. This this is the uh, the the. I don't ever do this, but since I've got it in front of me, the the IMDb two line. Mm-hmm. Uh, Setup synopsis for this film is uh, is pretty concise and gives you no detail or flavor, but it does tell you what you need to know to a degree. Mm-hmm. It says a British novelist travels to Spain to visit his sister. 
However, when he arrives, he discovers that she has been murdered by a gang of devil-worshipping bandits called the Devil's Cross. That is so wrong. The last I was about part to say, of that, that is, is uh, That is really, I was about okay. to say, you had me go into it last part, I'm like, blah, what? Okay, that's know. wrong. Uh, she has a not, motorcycle okay, gang or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she has not been murdered by a gang of devil-worshipping bandits. That is wrong, wrong, no, She wrong. was murdered at the base of a local wow. artifact that is very well designed and really cool looking. And it's yes. called, and it's supposedly made from Satan's armor. And it is called the Devil's, Devil's Cross. Cross. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of legends in the area. Uh, first of all, let's let's state that this film does take place in uh, what looks like Victorian times, um, talk, probably mm-hmm. somewhere between 1870 to 1890 mm-hmm. or 1900 at the latest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, that's, that's probably a good 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 guess. That's a guess. That's what that's what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still seeing horse-drawn carriages. You know, we don't see any early automobiles or anything like that. So we're guessing that uh, yeah, that we're still. Still in the uh, late late 1800s. But um, the film does begin with our protagonist, Alfred Dawson. Uh, he's having a fitful sleep uh, in his uh, rather well-appointed study. Yeah. Uh, he is in London. We're we uh, given that information by uh, showing us uh, Big Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just in case. Yeah, just just so in know. case, here's some stock footage to make you think <laughs> that we're in London. Uh, he is having a nightmare about a, a lovely young woman being menaced by a group of uh, ghostly riders with swords circling her in, mm. the, in the dark. He sits down to uh, write this out on, uh, on an old-style typewriter. Really, it's one, def- definitely mm. gives you a, a sense of uh, this being the late 1800s, early 1900s mm. at the earliest with this, yeah. with this type of old typewriter. Yeah. But he can't satisfy his need to get things down and instead uh, sits down to kind of think about it and smoke a pipe. Uh, we see more of his nightmares. He sits there and thinks, and it becomes clear that the writers he can see. You, we get to see more of them, and they, they appear to definitely be uh, Templar knights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as one raises his sword to strike at this beautiful young woman, we see that there is no flesh on his hand, which gives That's you. What's say? When are we gonna? When are we gonna? When are we gonna talk, talk about, about the, the uh, elephant? The, yes, yes, the 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 ride, the corpse, the corpse like horse uh, riding corpse in the in the room here. That this. Could yes. have been easily transformed into what? A blind dead a blind film. dead film brings up all kinds of questions. Yep, yep, yep. Now the only thing that this doesn't have, the only way this couldn't be a blind dead film is that even if there are flashbacks to long ago and far away in the blind dead films, they're always contemporary stories. True. And That's this true. is not and in any way, not. shape, or form a contemporary story. So. But in the way that they were tried to monkey with the formula a little bit, and that was not a reference to. Uh, the the, the, <laughs> the revenge monkey. of the planet ape. I did not mean that. Actually, that was not that was unintentional. Uh, but like like with something like Ghost Galleon, where yeah. they tried to change the game a little bit. Like okay, let's put them in a different setting. I could have totally seen them doing this where the blind dead are sort of almost in the background of the story. You know, but sort they're of, still yeah. but their influence is still felt there. And all you'd have to do is just change some of those scenes to where they're doing their old slow motion thing. But I, but what it brings up what 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 I was wondering. I was thinking okay, did okay. Did Paul Nashi, in him writing his script, was he influenced by the Blind Dead films? You can't imagine that John Gilling had, had, was influenced by them, or were the Blind Dead films influenced by something in Bakir's earlier original writing? You know? I would, so, I would think that he may that that the Blind Dead films may have been. Yeah, that maybe there was something in the, and of course I know that that maybe the whole legend of the Templars maybe just figures very heavily into Spanish mythology anyway but it's just because by this point I'm assuming now I can't remember when the first time when the first Blind Dead film came out but by this point uh, 72 I think. I think so by this point you know they would have already come out and been successful yeah. so I just wondered made me wonder if uh, 
if 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 they if Paul Nashi was like kind of influenced by that mythology himself, and not that he was trying to make a Blind Dead film, but if maybe that's what made him want to you know to write something that's centered around the Templars, you know, other than the fact that obviously he was a big fan of this poet too. But it's a fascinating thing to think like how close this could be to a Blind Dead film if you know, oh, know. how little tweaking it would take to make it because you know and there's sometimes later in the films when we see their faces. And they're not skeleton faces, but they've definitely put makeup in kind of to make them look sort of undead, you know. And yeah. Very close, you know, very close to Well, uh, really quickly, let's talk about uh, the fact that the young woman who's being menaced in these visions or yes. this nightmare is... Uh, the, the lovely, lo- lovely... The lovely Emma Cohen, who we have mm-hmm. seen a few times here on the show. She was in Cutthroats 9 mm-hmm. and... Um, Strange Loves of the Vampire. Strange Loves of the Vampire, as well as... What, the all-time classic, Horror Rises... Oh, I'm sorry. Horror rises from the tomb. My my mm-hmm. brain just fried. Uh, it's always it's always fun to see mm-hmm. uh, see her because she is she's such she's such a pretty lady. And it's another thing where she there are so few films that you get to see her in. Mm-hmm. Um, at least when she takes a a lead role, this is not really a lead role. This is very much a small role. Mm-hmm. She only has I think important maybe, in its way, but it's not, very, yeah, but it, not it, much yeah. screen time. Not much screen time. A very important role. But she has these these kind of just naturally tragic eyes, sorrowful eyes, which just lend yeah. perfectly to her playing tragic figures or playing you know sorrowful figures that sort of thing. So well, yeah. I got to thinking about it a little bit, and I was talking about uh, Nadiuski, the actress Nadiuski, yeah, who's right. in uh, People Alone in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how we talk about we talk about how you look at her and her eyes and the way the camera fo- the, the way the camera really seems to love her mm-hmm. and Emma Cohen's eyes are very much a part of her appeal as well. Yeah. yeah. But their faces naturally get across very different emotions and very very different. Uh, mm-hmm. They 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 kind of affect you visually in a very different way. But their eyes are the center of that. They're yeah. Very pretty ladies in yeah. very different ways. Yeah. And their eyes are the center of their 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 kind of their of their beauty. But they're, they're yeah. such different such a different appeal. It's just a, I I I've been thinking about that just a little bit. And um, I agree. I agree. They're, they're they're pretty ladies. I would love to have seen them on in on screen at the same time just to be able to compare and contrast mm-hmm. their faces. And I don't know that they ever did a film together. I'm pretty sure they didn't. So. Yeah, yeah, that is no. You're right. That's interesting. It would be interesting to do that. And, well, Alfred here is uh, he's visited by his lady friend Maria, uh, who notices notices his pipe, and uh, she admonishes him for smoking hashish, and it seems to be an an old argument. Between yeah, it's kind of an ongoing thing that neither of them get too bent out of shape over. Yeah. Uh, she brings word from his editor that his manuscript had better not be late or he can look for another job. So we find out that he is a writer mm-hmm. and that uh, he's he's definitely not having a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of uh, of luck getting his his work accomplished yeah, he here lately. He seems to have some kind of block. Block. Yeah, he's seeing these visions and he wants to put them into words, but he just can't seem to to make it work. He tells her about this reoccurring dream, and her response is, "Well, write it, write it down. That could be what that could be mm-hmm. your story. Write it down." And he says. Uh, he, cl- he claims he's got to first try to understand its significance before I can write it down. He says, it doesn't matter if I smoke or not, the dreams return every night. Yeah. Now, this is this is where things get weird and interesting. She's picked up a few books for him uh, in mm. Chelsea, she says, uh, for cheap at some kind of sale. And one of them is Leendas by... Bakir. Bakir. And um, he opens it up, and inside he sees a drawing that looks just like a scene out of his dream mm-hmm. with a knight Templar mm-hmm. menacing a woman while the knight is on horseback. Mm. Maria reads from the book relating a brief history of the Templar Knights. They were supposed to protect Christians from pagans, but eventually became rich and corrupt. 
Uh, they renounced progress, embraced dark beliefs, mm. and began to worship Satan. In 1332, their order was outlawed. At this point is when Alfred uh, gets the uh, letter from Spain, which is from his sister Justine. She relates that uh, she's worried and wants him to come for a visit. She has had a miscarriage, and she says her husband Enrique blames her for losing the baby. After reading this, uh, Alfred says, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go to Madrid to see her. You know, she's upset, and my sister mm -hmm. needs me." Right. Maria asks to go along because, and this is a bit of a shock to all of us because everybody's speaking Spanish, mm. because apparently Maria is originally from Spain in the first place. Yeah, she says, yeah, she says she apparently believes she knows Spain, that he needs a guide there. He needs somebody who really knows the... And I like this. Uh, they're, they're very loving, and it's very obvious their relationship yeah. is very sweet because he says, yes, you can come along as long as you don't complain about me smoking mm. the hashish. And he said... And she says, I'll try not to complain. And he says, well, I'll try not to smoke it. Yeah. And. Yeah, and I think she almost, I think there's one other comment one of them makes about it. I don't think either of us are going to keep our promises yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. But also the tag end of this scene is Maria's, Maria gets across the idea that she's, she feels that Alfred's not really completely invested in their, in their love and that she's convinced that one yes. day he'll leave her. Right. And his question is, why do you think this? Mm. I there's no one else. Why mm -hmm. would you think this? And she just says, "It's just that I. That's yeah. just how I feel about yeah. your the she way feels you there's feel." There's somebody me. out there that he's going to. Yeah, yeah. That, that she's not the one he's going to feel that way for. So. Yeah, she's she's convinced he'll one day leave her. Is mm -hmm. how she puts it. Well, the next scene is where we meet uh, Caesar Del Rio. He's sitting in a park bench in what turns out to be Madrid, and he's waiting for just mm -hmm. Justine to show up, the sister, sister um, Alfred. Alfred. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She tells him that her husband husband seems to suspect that they are lovers. Turns out that they have been, but mm -hmm. that, that has ended. Ended, right. And uh, she wants him to go away. She wants Del Rio to just leave. Uh, he refuses because, well, he works for Enrique. He's his private secretary, mm -hmm. and uh, he likes the money he makes working for Enrique, and he's not going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. She demands that he leave, or when her brother arrives... Oh, and I'm sorry, right before we said oh, sure. when this scene starts, isn't he reading the same... Isn't it the same oh, he's, he's reading, reading the, the same exact book. same book the that the Maria has yeah. just given to Alfred, so yeah. Well, like I said, he refused. So he demands that. Uh, I mean, she demands that he leave, or when her brother arrives, she will inform him of the experiments that Caesar conducts. Yeah. Hmm. Now, that that that's a big WTF question. Yes, right it there. is. There's a little bit of a that's kind of a thread that sort of left they don't dangling really go anywhere. there. Yeah, they don't really go anywhere with that one. It's like which what, is, what is uh, when she says experiments, which could also mean like ceremonies. Well, it can also not, mean not, like, exactly. And I'm wondering if. I think that's something that we're supposed to get an idea of as we find out about things right at the end of the movie. Things sure. that we're not going to spoil, by the no, way, people. Right, right, we do right. not. We are not going to spoil this movie, so you can listen to this whole podcast, and we will not be ruining the last fifteen to twenty minutes of this movie for you because it has a few nice. It's got a few nice things that I think it's best left for the mm -hmm. viewer to learn as they watch the film. Right. But I think that the the quote unquote uh, experiments is. One of the ways that kind of ties in is something that ties into the very end of the film when, when certain things get revealed. Mm. Well, Alfred and Maria arrive uh, in Madrid at his sister's home to discover that. To, I mean, they walk in and and there's Justine in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. So in the in the several days that it's taken them to get from London to Madrid, she has died. Yeah. And this um, is a nice. That was kind of a nice little jolt yeah, for the viewer too. A, there a because, jolt, you're just because like, it's the it's next. Like, scene. Whoa! Yeah, there's a very next scene. There's yeah. And Justine is dead in the coffin. Well, Del Rio uh, comes in and, and has to explain things. Uh, he, he says that uh, she left the house one night, got lost, and was found dead. Mm -hmm. 
The police have the murderer, but apparently she was killed. They have the murderer in custody in the local jail. And her husband, Enrique, is too upset to talk to them right then, um, but um, he'll, he, you know, the next day or so, surely he'll be, he'll be able to talk to you. Um, we're then introduced. We see Enrique, and he doesn't seem that upset. I mean, he, he's probably, he seems to be one of those stoic men who's trying to, you know, continue his work, continue doing things instead of to keep himself from breaking down, or at least that's the charitable way to put it. Yes. <laughs> either that or either that or he's unaffected or not much affected by mm-hmm. his wife's death. One of the things I don't I forget if you just mentioned it, but in the letter she wrote to Alfred talking about how she was worried or afraid she mentioned that she'd had a miscarriage and that Enrique blamed her. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny how I think it's kind of the the sign of the times in which this is set and that, you know, Alfred never really confronts Enrique about that, you know. I mean like yeah. you know, like, hey, you're a real shit to treat my sister this way because unfortunately that kind of attitude was probably pretty common. Not necessarily to say that Alfred would believe that, but among married couples, I mean, or among the way women were thought of in society, it probably wasn't uncommon for the blame for such a thing to just be, to be put on, on woman, you know, yeah. and not just totally reflect badly back upon the husband, even, you know, even though us yeah. and our modern sensibilities are thinking like, well, you asshole, you know. What, what kind of a jerk are you doing? You really? What kind of, how kind of an asshole are you? Yeah. yeah. Um, Alfred wants to talk to the killer because he he wants to he wants to talk to the person who killed his sister. Mm-hmm. And that night, Alfred is talking to Maria about how close he was with his sister. He and you know they like one could be heard and the other would know it and things like that when they were younger. And he feels that his sister is trying to communicate with him now. He, uh, as a matter of fact, that evening he starts to hear the occasional voice that seems to be his sister speaking to him. Mm-hmm. And this is a nice little touch because. At this point, we can't be positive that he is actually hearing something. In other words, there is some kind of supernatural communication right. going on, or if this is the effect of his drug use. Right. That night, Alfred has a nightmare that his sister rises from her coffin and uses her own blood from the wound on her neck to write the number 13 in Roman numerals mm-hmm. on right. his palm. X, one, you know, X-I-I-I, yeah. 13 in Roman numerals. Mm-hmm. And he's completely puzzled by this, and... Once he wakes up, he, you know, he, of course, he has no way of, of, of figuring it out. It's just another piece of an odd puzzle in his head, and he doesn't know, he really doesn't right. know what to do. Right. Well, after the funeral, Alfred finds out that uh, her body was found at the foot of a mountain about which there are many local legends. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the people are superstitious about this place. It's called the Mountain of Souls. And uh, if a place was called the Mountain of Souls, all I can say, uh, legends, no shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's said that uh, medieval soldiers rise from their graves on All Saints Day near the area known as the Cross of the Devil, which is at the base of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Alfred is not convinced by the flimsy evidence uh, against the murderer and starts digging into uh, that book that he that was he was given about the, the Templar Knights. After their turn... Uh, it seems that after their turn to black magic, they settled in the region known as the Mountain of Souls. That's where they set up shop. They were involved in a huge battle of some type there, and they and their monastery was destroyed. Legend has them rising on All Saints Day to practice their black rituals. Now, here's a question. Mm-hmm. Would the word experiments be replaced with rituals? Yeah, yeah. See, that, that's kind of what um, I think you could easily in a translation, especially in a translated version, I think that I think that could very much mean, you know... Could be. Yeah. I mean, obviously experiments, yeah, we think science, but but yeah, I think that could be that mistake, mistranslation there. Okay. He goes to the jail 
to uh, talk to the to the supposed murderer and learns that the suspect hung himself that morning, which means we're just SOL. Yeah. <laughs> uh, by the way, this is the one scene Eduardo Calvo has. He's the yeah. uh, the, the warden of the jail. Mm-hmm. So one scene, he'll say hello to Eduardo. And yeah, he's hey, Eduardo, I picked up your paycheck and go. Yeah. <laughs> now, on his way back to uh, Enrique's home, uh, he is attacked by a knife-wielding man. Yeah. Just out of nowhere. And luckily, he uh, he's able to uh, keep this guy from killing him and uh, run him off. But that's interesting. Mm-hmm. He's attacked. And he goes to see Maria. He's telling her about it. And, and while they're talking, we see someone in a ninja mask mm-hmm. watching them. Who looks like part of their face underneath the ninja mask is all mangled burned. and red, burned, yeah. yeah. Which is strange. Strange. And why is there a ninja in this film? I don't know. Why is his face burned? <laughs> well, uh, Maria and Alfred compare notes, and both of them feel that they are being watched. Mm-hmm. Maria definitely has the sense that there's a ninja lurking around. I mean, no, <laughs> with a burned face. With a burned face, is <laughs> lurking around. <laughs> and... and um, they, they're thinking about it as like, who knew where Alfred was going mm-hmm. and who could have sent some guy to kill him. So none of this is really adding up. They, they Once again, they're getting pieces of a puzzle here and they're starting to feel like maybe this mm-hmm. is uh, this is getting uh, more complicated by the second. Mm-hmm. Now the next day, Alfred shows Enrique the letter that Justine sent him. Now this upsets Enrique and he agrees to accompany Alfred to see the place where his sister's body was found. Mm-hmm. He, ins- he insists to him that well, let's just say Enrique is making a good show of being emotional and upset about his wife's death. He insists that uh, Del Rio go along as well. He's a, he's a secretary and he wants mm. him to come along for whatever reason. I, it's, mm. it's like having a valet along in a, in a certain sense, I guess. Mm. Alfred doesn't like the idea of Del Rio going along and uh, states outright that he feels Justine didn't trust him and neither does he. Right. Now, uh, there's a, a scene that's... an kind of interesting it's a conversation between maria and del rio about the author Bakir, yeah which uh, is interesting um i don't know that it was needed in the film it adds a little bit of flavor and kind of some mm. uh, shading to yeah. the, to both of their characters mm. but it's a scene that it's the first scene in the movie movie that going back through i'm like that didn't need to be there yeah no you're right you know, it basically established that you know del rio is kind of a he sort of seems to, when he gets into these actual discussions, he seems to try and put himself over as across as just a simple man, not really into discussions of philosophy and things. You know, he's kind of like because if I remember from that conversation, he says you probably should talk to Enrique more about if you want to learn about Bacure. You know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not really that familiar. Yeah. You just kind of like I'm just out of you know, don't read the stuff, not really interested in it, and that kind of thing. So. I mean, this is not an overly long film. It's ninety, right? I think right at ninety minutes, maybe 90, 92. 92, something like that. And so it's not as if the the film feels too long, but I if there's, I were if I were to go in, that could be done there, there's a little idea. bit of trimming that could have been done, and this scene isn't necessary at all. Right. But uh, over dinner, Enrique relates uh, this tale. Mm-hmm. Now this is a, this is a different tale. This is interesting, and this is the one that comes straight out of the story Spirit Mountain. Mm-hmm. In 1393, a man from Sorias invited many of his friends on a hunt. He was celebrating the return of his niece from France. Uh, his, his, his niece's name was Be, uh, Beatrix. Mm-hmm. Cousin Indigo stops the hunt when they get near the Mountain of Souls out of respect for local custom. The young man was in love with Beatrix, even though they had just met Beatrix. Uh, that, that night, 
he talks to her and professes his love and gives her a, a, a gift of a large ruby ring and asks for a token from her in return. She wants to brush him off. It's clear that she really doesn't feel the way mm. he does for her. And says that uh, she lost a scarf earlier that day on the hunt, and if he were to retrieve it, she thinks she dropped it near the, the mountain. If, she, if he retrieves the scarf, mm. then he can have that as a token. Mm. He agrees and rides off, even though it's, it's night. Yeah, and we all know and the legends are supposedly don't go in that area because of the, exactly. the spirits of the Templars. Yeah. Uh, that night, while she's asleep, her bedroom door flies open on its own, Wind blows, and her scarf is suddenly sitting on the chair next to her bed. I think this is a really neat scene, actually. It really I is. Really it's like very that. creepy the way that, yeah, very the, well put together. Yeah. The way we look down, we see the scarf, and the chair then the moves, chair to moves the bed, toward the bed. And yeah. she knows just by seeing that automatically that that means that Indigo's dead. That's yeah. like, it's a really effective way to show that. It's very well done. I like this whole sequence a lot. The next morning, of course, his body was found. And later, she was ki- and later she was also killed at the foot of the cross of the devil. Mm. Del Rio asks if uh, now th- this this is this is neat. This story is nice. And at mm. this point, um, different different conversation happens. And uh, Del Rio asks Alfred if he's here to solve his sister's murder or to get a story. And this mm. is a very insulting thing. In other words, you're a writer. Are you doing this? Are you dragging us out to where your sister's body was found yeah. just to get a story? Yeah. Or are you actually interested in finding out? That you, or do you really honestly think that there's something about your sister's death that mm. is not evident to the police involved? And uh, Alfred's response is kind of uh, probably perfect from that time, too. Is he, he says, I'll remind you that I'm a guest here, you know, meaning yeah. that... Don't start a fight with me. <laughs> Don't start a fight with me or you're going to dislike us. Yeah. Um, now, after after that dinner, uh, Alfred proposes to Maria. And this is, uh, this is they've been, you know, sleeping in different rooms, mm-hmm. not um, not traveling as right. a couple or anything like that, or traveling as a couple, but as, as mm-hmm. an unmarried couple. Yeah. What he's proposing to her with is a ring ident- identical to the one in the story that was given to Beatrix. Mm-hmm. And she refuses and she gives... She gives her reasons, which is which basically relates back to the the idea that she has that Alfred isn't as Alfred just isn't as into her as she is yeah. to him. And I love the independence of her character. I know? do too. I think she's a very good character because she's yeah she's she's just she's there because she cares about him and she's obviously not tore up. I mean, you feel like she's probably there's a, probably a sadness in her that they can't you know that she recognizes this about him. Yeah. But at the same time, she's so accepting of it and so much her own person. I, I think it's a very, very good character, the way she's written. And, and I like the actress portraying, portraying her as well. Uh, we should we should actually probably uh, go out of our way to, to praise her a little yeah, bit. Yeah, she's a little bit more. It's, it's Carmen Sevilla, uh, Sevilla and uh, she's, she's very good in this. Uh, unfortunately, she's, another, she's uh, one of those actresses who uh, I don't know that much about. I've not seen uh, her in a lot of the roles that she was in. Mm-hmm. And that is a bit of a shame. Yeah, it seemed like when I looked at it, too, I didn't recognize a whole lot of... Uh, uh, well, I mean, what... what I mean, we, she wasn't... Well, she definitely wasn't in, I don't believe... In she was in Death of a Hoodlum, which that's is, where, right, we, which that's is right. where we've seen her before. Yes, yes that's but, where we the sad fact is we just haven't seen her in very many films right. and uh, that's a shame because I think she's very good in this she's very good at playing uh, a, uh, a strong uh, female mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. and um, I'll just point out like uh, the last time we 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 talked about her she's in uh, a film that 
Uh, I have seen and I would recommend called House of the Damned from 1974. Yeah, I did look up that and I thought, well, this looks pretty well, it's, cool. Well, it's, it's a, it stars Donald Pleasance mm-hmm. and uh, Michael Dunn, mm-hmm. and it was a very good little film, kind of a kind of a mean spirited little film. It's a, it was a Spanish produced film and well worth seeing. And she's in that and has a very a very good role in it, beside Pleasance mm-hmm. and Dunn. And uh, I recommend that. But like I say, just haven't seen it. She was in a number of films, but I've seen very few of them. But uh, of her films I have seen, I can I can recommend House of the Damned quite well. Cool. It's a good film. Okay, so now we have them, uh, the four of them, uh, set off to the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they travel an entire day, and the first night they stop, uh, they have to stop to, uh, to uh, they have to stop overnight, and they stop at an inn. Now over dinner at this inn, Maria spots a tattoo on Del Rio's arm, and uh, there's this uh, back and forth between the two of them where she she speaks about how interesting it is mm-hmm. that uh, a tattoo is not something you can clean off, so that's something that you know makes someone easily identifiable. And uh, Del Rio very slimily points out, well, I, uh, that would only be of uh, concern to someone who was a criminal. Yeah. yeah. Which is true. That is true. And uh, also during dinner, Alfred is being uh, winked and nodded at by the, uh, the waitress who's serving mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the... Uh, Interesting things is uh, during conversation, um, Alfred relate. Alfred s- states the old idea that uh, the criminal always returns to the scene of the crime, and Alfred asks Del Rio why he's so determined to go along on this trip, mm-hmm. and he says he. Uh, this is after Enrique has left is left to go to bed already. Yeah. He says he doesn't uh, want Enrique to think he's a coward. He says that Enrique is very good at knowing people and 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 figuring them out. And he uh, and he doesn't want to appear to be a coward to Enrique. Mm-hmm. Wants to ma- maintain maintain a certain level of respect with him, and uh, he he he, would, he knows what kind of person I am. He he also knew what kind of person Justine was, and uh, knew that she wasn't exactly as clean as snow. <laughs> this makes the conversation take a yeah. dangerous tack, and uh, she was uh, after he says after all she was a young woman married to an older man. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Enrique did, you know, figure out that mm. she was essentially a whore. Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, uh, Justine's brother punches him dead in the face. Yeah, as you would, you know. <laughs> Del Rio's smart enough to uh, not try to retaliate. Yeah, doesn't try to push As I'm me. pretty sure Alfred would probably beat the hell out of him. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> and uh, he goes off to bed. Well, at this point, Alfred questions the waitress, uh, who I think the name was Inez. Inez, yeah. And uh, asks, he says, okay, do you, do you know Enrique and Del Rio? And she says, well, yes, I do. They come through here, you know, they hunt. Uh, they come through here during hunting season, and they, they stay here during hunting season frequently. And uh, do you know his wife? Do you know, do you know Justine? And she kind of hesitantly says yes. And he just looks at her and asks, do you, who do you think killed her? Now, this kind of freaks her out a little bit, and she doesn't really want to talk to him anymore. He offers her the ring that... Um, Maria refused mm-hmm. right. as a to, when he proposed to her if she'll just talk to him about whatever she appears to know. She says, uh, "Well, come to my room later on, and I'll tell you. I don't want to do. I don't want to do it here. I don't want to be overheard by the owner of the inn or whatever she's thinking." Mm-hmm. Um, now, just briefly, we have a little scene where we see Del Rio in his room, and uh, we are shown that he has brought along a hunting a hunting shotgun of some mm-hmm. type. Right. Um, and of course, the immediately any any film any any film. Viewer worth his salt is going, ah, well, you know, if you introduce a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> surely in the third act, that shotgun's going to be That shotgun's going to, yeah. <laughs> it will not stay unfired. Yeah. 
Well, that that night he does go to the, uh, Alfred does go to the waitress's room right. and um, the, they talk. At first, she thinks he's there for sex. I know it's obviously like, alone that she thought that was just he didn't really want to talk to me. She just immediately starts undressing. Undressing. Like, whoa, whoa, hey, he hey, says, hey, hey, whoa, 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 no, no, no. no honestly, really, <laughs> I, I do talk. need to know if you know anything about my sister's <laughs> murder. And um, um, while they're sitting there talking, and she relates this story, then once again being not being watched by the burned ninja. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Which is which is <laughs> odd. So they're being watched by the ninja. Um, now, um, what she relates is that they say that the cross at the base of the mountain was made with the armor of the devil. Mm-hmm. I saw Miss Car- uh, Cariello, that would be Justine, yeah. uh, get killed. She says she was there and she actually saw it happen. I was visiting a, visiting a friend near the cross and I'd been waiting a long time. A man on a horse came out of nowhere. She tried to run away, but he followed, calling her by name. He got off of his horse, killed her, and then placed her on the cross. Um, now, at this point, he demands, okay, you're going to have to show me. I'll give you this ring, but you've got to you show me the way to the cross. You've right. got to show me the path. And you've got to do it tonight. Mm-hmm. Well, he convinces her, and they ride out. It's a foggy night, and when he gets to the cross and sees it, he has a vision. And the vision he has is of the night that his sister was murdered. Yeah. And he sees this man all dressed in black who mm-hmm. looks very much like a Knight's Templar, right. partially. Yeah. He doesn't have the, the tunic. Right. But otherwise, it mm-hmm. looks like uh, could be our, our, our ninja, mm-hmm. just in full yeah, something in Knight's some sort Templar of black regalia. Cloak, you know, yeah, with a, with a hood and the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sees the murder happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, this is clearly a vision. Um, Back at the end, he they, they go back to the end. Back at the end, he wakes Maria and tells her what he's just seen. And uh, he's convinced that what he saw was a Templar knight killing her. Mm-hmm. But even he is questioning now, as he's talking to her, whether it was a hallucination brought on by the hashish. And Maria suggests that Justine's spirit might be trying to warn him away from the Mountain of Souls. Maybe this is your sister trying to get you to not come here. Yeah. This is where she was yeah. killed. You need to stay away. Mm-hmm. And his viewers are sitting there thinking, like, that sounds like pretty sound advice. That sounds like sound advice. Get your happy ass back to London. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Do you want to die, too? Come on, man. Well, meanwhile, what happens is we see the ninja Mm -hmm. kill... Killing the us. waitress. Yes, Killing yes. Us. Yeah, he comes in a room. She's kind of admiring her ring there, you know, and uh, um, and yeah, he comes in and strangles her in her bed. Which, very interesting, because the next morning, mm-hmm. the owner of the inn is complaining because she hasn't gotten so her ass late. out of the bed. Yeah, right. We know she's been murdered, but obviously he does not. Well, our troop... Yeah, they're our, our, our troop heads out the next morning. Yeah, in a carriage, and and yeah, and and it's not till after they leave that Ignacio, the innkeeper, finds go, finds goes to an end. Yeah, finds, and that's all we see of that at that point is just him right. knocking her door, trying to wake her up, open the door, and sees her dead body. Right. But the whole party has already left. They're I cleared the area in their in their carriage. They're on their way. Now, uh, since they've still got a, a a ways to go, Maria gets uh, Del Rio to tell the story of uh, the cross. And he relates the story that at one time there was a warrior who robbed, tortured, uh, and uh, killed the people of the region. But no one ever saw his face. They finally succeeded in catching him, and when the villagers removed his armor, there was nothing underneath. They used his armor to, to, they, to make a cross, and the blacksmith who melted it down and forged the cross claimed that the metal writhed like a living creature. And I love that image. I, thought, yeah. I wrote that down because I thought that is a fantastic, really strong image there. 
Now, one of the things that points out how very Nashy like this script is structured mm -hmm. is how we are given these stories. Mm -hmm. They're related to us. Sometimes we're shown them, yeah. as in flashback form, we're mm -hmm. given uh, visualizations of these stories, but these are stories told as legends and tall tales, superstitious things. And we're being told these stories that happened in, you know, 1393 right. or whenever. Right. And these are very much tall tales told around a fire. Mm. Or, as in most cases, around a dinner table or mm. in a coach to make the time go by. And it seems to me that the if this is the script that John Gilling saw and was complaining about, that it was just people sitting around a table talking... Well, if that's what he's talking about, these scenes like this, they're still in the film. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So exactly. You could make that complaint about this script and about this film that these people are relating all these stories. And but and, and these stories have a point. I mean, they relate to they they tie back. You know, they're referred to right. in the story that's ongoing. There, it's not just like somebody's just telling a random legend and it's just thrown away and that's it I mean they all tie back into what ultimately happens in the film each of these stories as they're related are actually mm -hmm. pushing the main narrative forward yeah so these are these are not um, just little mm -hmm. things off to the side that are si simply you know detail and filigree put onto a story to give it mm -hmm. some kind of uh, fake fake you know some, some kind of fake um, I don't know significance of some type it's not that type of thing what we have here are these stories that are being related to push the narrative in a certain direction. And at every instance, to give you more and more uh, that question of whether or not there's a supernatural answer to what's going on and whether or not this is something that, since it does focus in on a main character having a drug problem, whether or not he is imagining more than actually exists. I love that aspect. Yeah, it is. Once again, it is one of those things that this feels in its structure and in its storytelling elements very much like a Nashy story. Mm. And so I know we have Nashy talking and complaining, you know, talk, complaining quite a bit about uh, how his, you know, the film made a hash of his, of his, made a hashish of his script. Oh, that was a bad choice. That was a bad choice of words. Okay. He claims that the, the film kind of butchered his script. I'm not necessarily sure, just listening to the words coming out of these actors' mouths and the structure of the story itself, that that is necessarily true. Right. And it seems to me that this is a very Nashy-like story, a very Nashy-like film that he wasn't involved with past a certain point, but his fingerprints are all over it. Well, let's look at what just happens in just within a few minutes of this story, too. Very Nashy-like contrivances. One, the wagon wheel breaks, the carriage wheel breaks, which exactly. I mean, it's like, boy, they, you, they that's, just that's can't... That's the these next wagon, event, yeah. These, I was going to say, these wagon wheels in these days, boy, they just they just broke at the most inopportune times. You know, somebody could have come up with a, an unbreakable carriage wheel. Well, <laughs> but, well, but, well, but I know. The it's wagon like, wheel like, breaks, like, which we've seen before, and then count, Maria... That, that's right to count Dracula's great love. And then Maria's foot gets caught in a, a animal trap. trap. Yep. Out of Count Dracula's great love. Yep. I mean, so, you know, we're seeing all these little Nashy touches throughout this, this script. Right. Right, and, and it, in other words, it's not just the, the, the broad structure of the film, no. the story, it's also in the detail work. Yeah, it's it the, is. also the little bitty things that that force a character to not be in the rest of the story, right. such as yeah. Maria's foot getting caught in this the trap. trap and so that she now back. has to ride back, and so she's separated from it's just now the three men, the three caballeros now. <laughs> yes, fun <laughs> and fancy free. Uh, well, uh, after, after uh, 
the the coach driver and Marie ride off on the two horses because the carriage is uh, axle is broken, the back axle is broken. Mm-hmm. We have the three of them sitting there, essentially just waiting until the carriage uh, the carriage uh, carriage man can actually get somebody to come back and pick them up. Night falls and uh, it's dark, it's cold, and at some point they actually spot a light off in the distance, uh, and it might be a, a light in a house. They figure, well. We might, we might as well go there. I mean, we're just going to stand out here and freeze. Well, that a nice scene where, where Del Rio gets out that shot, shotgun, and oh, yeah. he's, for a long part of the scene, he's just got it leveled, right? It, just kind of Alfred, casually, Alfred kind of kind of, casually kind of, pointed it out. Yeah, to, because he says, well, it's when they hear, well, they hear a wolf howl. And at that point, it's funny. Oh, it's the I, old classic wolf house. And, yeah. and when they did that, I almost felt like I could hear John Gilling saying, Nashy, I told you to stay out of my film. He's <laughs> <laughs> there twice. Yeah, exactly. But but that's when Del Rio gets a gun out, and he says, he says, don't worry, I'm a, I'm a good shot. And the whole time, it's leveled right at Alfred. Alfred has to tell him, like, I would really prefer not yeah, to be the one yeah. to be shot, you know? But I just, be, a, it, I, I'm sure you're a good shot. I yeah. don't want to be yeah. <laughs> on the far end of that. Yeah, movie, and especially so, since yeah. I just punched you out last night, you know, you might be getting some and ideas, it, so, yeah, yeah, and it's pretty clear that I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> ¿Quién encontró el cuerpo de Justin? Un pastor. ¿Dónde? Al pie de una montaña, en un lugar extraño. Es un paraje casi desértico conocido como la Cruz del Diablo. Allí la gente tiene un temor supersticioso. Existen muchas leyendas. ¿Cuál es el nombre de esa montaña? El Monte de las Ánimas. ¿Y qué dicen las leyendas? Son cuentos sobre el demonio. Caballeros medievales que salen de sus tumbas el día de todos los santos, causando terror en aquellos lugares. Un lugar como la cruz del diablo. ¿Presenció el pastor el asesinato? ¿Mm? No. Pero antes de descubrir el cadáver vio a un hombre huyendo. ¿Logró identificar a ese hombre? Tengo entendido que sí. ¿Ha descubierto la policía el móvil del crimen, señor Carrillo? Robo. Llevaba una pulsera que yo le había regalado el último aniversario de nuestra boda y que no tenía cuando hallamos su cadáver. ¿Y se ha recuperado? No. ¿Tuvo tiempo el sospechoso de deshacerse de ella antes que le detuvieran? No lo sé. ¿Podrías preguntárselo a la policía? Esa es mi intención, Enrique. Espero además poder hablar con el detenido y visitar el lugar donde fue asesinada Justine. Personalmente no tengo ninguna duda. El asesino de Justine es el hombre detenido por la policía. Las pruebas me parecen muy frágiles. Me sorprende que las aceptes con tanta facilidad. Justine era mi mujer. Y la quería de verdad. Lo único que me importa por encima de todo es llevar ante la justicia a su asesino. I don't think, I may be wrong, but my, my memory is so bad now, but I don't think that we've actually talked about the guy who's playing Alfred, have we? Because... Oh, God, we, he we literally right. we literally saw him in our last cast. He uh, uh, he, his, played, yes. he played he uh, played the butler slash lover of uh, of Patty Shepard in uh, the Murderers Among the Thirteen. Uh, he played Henry uh, Ramiro Oliveros mm-hmm. or Oliveros mm-hmm. Ramiro Oliveros. There you go. Hey, Oliveros. At I least it you, sounds yeah, better. Just did, I yeah, Oliveros. I think is what it's supposed <laughs> no, to be. No, it can't but, be. Yeah. It can't be. Have to roll the R's at that point. <laughs> well, oh, okay, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that can't be right. That, that Elena can't. can tell us. I, I know they don't roll the R at the end of the word, but I think if the R appears earlier in the word, 
You have to roll it. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the rules but are. But I don't know if the R starts the word. It would be Romero Oliveros. Yeah, well, he is, he is quite good in this as Alfred. I agree as with you. As Rod wipes himself off again. <laughs> as, I, as I wipe the, the saliva from my lips. Uh, he was in Hundra as well. Yeah. Which is which maybe... maybe yeah, Hundra's I'll, turned out. We'll have to watch it again because well, it's such a start. Maybe not. Hundra's a fun film. Hundra was the last. It was actually... Uh, I might have, to do a, might have to do a bloody pit on that one one day. Yeah. That's one that uh, Jeff and I sat down and watched right after I got the DVD years oh, ago. Yeah. It was just so much fun. Uh, he was also in the Yellow Hair and the Fortress of Gold, mm-hmm. which is a film worth talking about, although maybe only once. Uh, but he was in uh, quite a number of films. Cannibal Holocaust, he was in. Yeah, uh, Swamp of the Ravens, which is one that turns up again and again from, mm-hmm. different, from different people. And uh, uh, he's someone that I think is quite good in this. And be honest, I, he's one of those actors who I would be willing to follow through a couple of films just out of curiosity to see yeah. what else he's done. Yeah. But. Um, you know, one day I will have to see this film called Rape from 1976 because he's in that as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, just out of curiosity, because any film named Rape is, uh, you know. <laughs> or remember, Natiuski is also in that. No, oh, yeah, also she's in, in too, yeah. Natiuska is also in I that. I wonder who she rapes in that. Maybe she, <laughs> she rapes him. Maybe she rapes uh, him. No, that would be intriguing, but yeah. nevertheless, I never, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, He's he's quite good in this, and he's and he uh, he's a strong, solid actor, and he's one yeah. who can easily hold the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, this film, it's kind of got the classic leading man looks there, and all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He does, and uh, he's 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 solid, and I enjoyed him in this movie. But uh, we're at the point now where we go where they've uh, they're 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 in Inquisition, and that gives us a total of uh, three people in this film that were also in Inquisition. Uh, the yep. other ones being Eduardo Calvo, and then the woman who plays Justine, Monica Randall. Uh, all three of them are, are in Inquisition. Right, right. His the actor's name is Tony Isbert. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that because it's might be his bear. Might be his bear. Is bear? Might be. Maybe. Perhaps. That would be the Spanish pronunciation. I mean, I'm sorry. That would be, the, be the, the French. French maybe it's his bear. I'm not even. I can't even. I can't roll that R. I'm sorry. I can't. He's, no, don't roll the R for that. You're, you're going to kill me. But uh, yeah, he is someone who was in Inquisition. He was. He's been in a. a um, he's in the uh, film we're going to be talking about next month as well. Yes, which we we'll will preview that, that shortly. We'll preview, preview that in just a little. A saga while. of the Draculas is in. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's in the Dracula saga for Klamovsky. Is uh, in Tragic Ceremony, uh, which is a movie that we may end up having to talk about one day in a uh, another Beyond Nashy. And he's in a film in 1971 called The Roosters of Dawn, which uh, just the title alone. <laughs> yeah, it is a great title. <laughs> well, I, I'm you know, okay. Let's let's see. It says it's a drama. Uh, Jose Luis Cienes de Heredia is the director. I just mangled that name. Yes, you did. Take that, Jose. You got to say it is Jose. <laughs> I gotta mangle. I gotta. I just the Roosters of Dawn. I just. I you gotta That's love great. that title. That's a great title. What a freaking title. Big good band name, man. <laughs> the Roosters of Dawn. <laughs> well, at any rate, he's quite good in this as well. He plays uh, Indigo. He uh, introduces himself. He is Indigo Diacali. Uh, I just I just mangled his last name. And you kind of go, huh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. That story that they told with this yeah. guy as Indigo who died, mm-hmm. that was a long time ago. Yep, yep. That was uh, like centuries ago. Uh-huh. What the hell? 
Uh, well, they don't know this, of course, because they don't know what this guy looked like. Right. They were just telling the story. So they asked to stay the night, and he says, of course. And I love this. He says, one waits for days and years. They turn into centuries. Then someone appears at our door. And they thought he was just being metaphorical. Yeah. He says, it seems this was predestined. Now, he's not being creepy or weird. He's, he's just speaking the truth. He's mm-hmm. just speaking the truth. And he's not. And he's quite quite yeah. amenable to them and quite mm-hmm. nice, and everything goes pretty well. Sits them down, uh, get, gets them gets them to their own rooms, and uh, actually these beautiful, well appointed rooms. The place looks great. Um, and once he's in his room, Alfred once again hears his sister's voice calling him, and uh, he kind of falls asleep there to visions of Beatrix again being attacked by uh, the Knights Templar. Mm-hmm. At dinner, whoa! Look who's sitting. Look who's him. sitting at the table with them. But it would be cousin Beatrix. Mm-hmm. Oh my. <laughs> now, Indigo asks why Alfred wants to visit uh, the mountain. And uh, he advises against it as tomorrow is All Saints Day. Mm-hmm. He relates the legend to them again. And after the uh, cousins, now at this dinner table, Beatrix never speaks. Right. right. She's introduced yeah. and she's sitting there with them, but she never speaks. The, the cousins <coughs> retire to bed and... Um, our characters sit around the table and converse for a few more minutes. And Del Rio is very interesting. He points out that uh, he, he says, "Well, what do you what do you think of this place and our, our host?" And he says, uh, "Do you notice that there are no servants in the place that we've seen? But this house is immaculate." Mm-hmm. And uh, as they kind of take note of this, a wind blows from out of nowhere in this place and blows out the candles. Mm-hmm. And uh, very much creep creeps out Enrique and, and kind of unsettles both of them just a little bit. Well, all of them just a little bit, I should say. Uh-huh. And uh, they go to bed. Now, Beatrix visits Alfred in his room that evening, and he it's obvious that this is the woman from his visions, and she says, I've been waiting for you. Yeah. And his initial his reaction is beautiful because he yeah. really is confused. He says, am, yeah. I, am I dreaming? Yeah, yeah. And she says, no, it's not a dream. So he asks her why, if you are Beatrix, and it does appear that she is Beatrix from the this tale that he was told, why did you send Indigo to his death? Mm-hmm. And she's straightforward. She says it was a diabolical impulse to see yeah. how far I could go. Yeah. And now I'm condemned to be followed by the Templars eternally. And he's, he says, well, wait a minute. Okay, so you're cursed to be here. What about Indigo? And she says that he's dead, but he rejects his rest until someone frees me. He won't go on until someone frees me. Mm-hmm. And Alfred very forcefully yeah. says, I'll free you. I will yeah, do it. Right. And she informs him that it's not going to be easy and that the only way to do this is to do away with the Knights Templar. Yeah. And the only way that she knows of to do it is that in the monastery, in the chapel of the monastery at the base of the, the mountain, yeah. you'll find a sword. And after seeing the sword, no one has lived, but that's that's why I think that you might not want to do this, because it would mean your death. It says, you can use that sword to destroy them, but the price of it is probably going to be your life. And once you reach the monastery, you'll also find out who killed Justine and why they did so. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to stop. I think we should yeah, stop the discussion. Yeah, this is probably where we're going to... And uh, kind of uh, leave the uh, last twenty or so minutes of the film to uh, viewers to right. see for themselves, because this is a film. This is a film that I'm that I am going to encourage you to see. I'm going to recommend it, and I think it's something that 
Nashi fans and just fans of gothic horror would enjoy. Um, I like this film. What I will say is that we do find out who and why. Uh, the mysteries are solved. You do find out what happened to Justine and why it occurred. Uh, we also find out the significance of the number 13 that he saw in that vision earlier when his sister drew it in the palm of his hand. We find out who really believes in these legends and who doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we see a fantastic, in my opinion, sword fight with the dead. Yeah, which is really cool. Well, uh, and right, there's also a fantastic reveal of the dead, which I won't give away because I don't yes. want to spoil it. But one of the one of the nice, you know, John Gilling is is there's certain images from the film that people take away from you know. Like from the Plague of the Zombies, you yeah. know, everybody always remembers the great sequence where the zombies emerging from the, you know, from the graves. You know, well, there's, yep. there's, yeah, there's a point where the Templars are revealed in a fashion that I think is just a great I think it's touch. wonderful. Yeah. 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 Very nice directorial touch there. Um, and let's just say that Alfred survives this night uh, in his encounter with the Templar Knights, but uh, his problems are far from over. Yes. Well, let's leave it at that. Yeah. Now, I'm going to say that as John Gilling, as much as I want to... Um, let's say criticize him for his statements about mm-hmm. uh, the genesis of the script and how he got his hands on it and the changes he may or may not have made mm-hmm. to it. I really enjoy his direction in this film. Uh, it very much is of a piece with the work that he did for Hammer. Uh, the uh, He moves the camera well. I like his choice of shots. I like the way he frames the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only complaint that I would have with his direction, uh, I think unfortunately relates back to what we were talking about briefly earlier which is i think the film could have a slightly faster pace at times uh, i think mm-hmm. it could be just a little bit shorter not mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. i would i would say it could, if it were just about five minutes shorter it would feel mm-hmm. a little better paced yeah that's my one complaint about mm-hmm. uh the direction i like the way he lays things out i like the way he films things um I will say that uh, there is a gauzy look, and it's not just—it's uh, not, not uh, just a washed-out print. It's yeah, no, it's not a bad yeah. print. It, this is an intentional look given to the film. It's a kind of diffused lighting uh, uh, that is done to to give it that haze, uh, kind of haze. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not overdone like right. in some of, uh, say, Peter Hines' films from the eighties, <laughs> <Yeah>. like yeah. <laughs> like the Star Chamber. If you've yeah. ever seen the Star Chamber, which is a pretty good little film, there are whole scenes where you're in a courtroom and you're there's like there's a fog in the room and you're trying to figure out what the fuck there's <laughs> why is there a fog in this goddamn room? <laughs> uh, it's not that it's not like that. It's not mm-hmm. this thing where you're you're immediately drawn it, 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 that immediately draws your attention and makes you go, what in the fuck were you thinking? But it is something that gives the film a certain look. And it is something that I think adds immeasurably to a film that is a gothic. This is a film that's in color. It is a gothic. It is a it is a period piece that maintains its period very effectively. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it. I'm I'm sure the budget could not have been very high, but uh, everything looks good. I didn't spot any anachronisms. Mm-hmm. Nothing stood out as, as something that didn't fit the story. Yeah. And I like the feel of it all the way through. Like I say, I would just have had the film move a little just. A, tiny bit faster just a little bit uh and that um that's a minor complaint as far as i'm concerned um this is not my favorite work from john gilling mm-hmm. uh that would i would fall back on probably play of the zombies for that mm-hmm. um but it is one that i enjoy and it is a shame that this is his last film because yeah. i'm assuming that this just i'm assuming that this did not do well and that he may have uh <clears throat> made some uh, enemies in the Spanish <laughs> Spanish film industry that are not being talked about in these interviews that we've got with him. Yeah. So 
my assumption is that that uh, is the, the kind of put the kibosh on him having a kind of re- renaissance in uh, the film industry in Spain. Right. But at least we got this film out of yeah. the, out of the situation, and uh, I'm glad we did because mm-hmm. uh, yes, what, uh, if you were to ask, uh, would you prefer this film having been made by Paul Nash? My answer is going to be yeah, of course I would because mm-hmm. whatever spent he would have put on it, what I suspect we would have seen is something where. Um, it's something along the lines of what he did uh, just soon afterwards in Inquisition, yeah. where we would get um, uh, kind of a more realistic look at this. I prob- the, 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 we might not have gotten the, 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 uh, the kind of diffused lighting that gives it that gauzy yeah. um, period look. But it may have been something that we might have gotten some things a little more visceral in the film. You know, there might have been might, some a little, might, bit, because, little bit more grittier. You know, a little bit gorier, maybe. And because one complaint that I can see possibly someone else lodging against this movie is that it's bloodless. There's no real nastiness to mm-hmm. the violence, and you don't get a sense of there being cut nastiness either. I think this was no, really the way this film yeah. was made. I, I I think I think so. There's no nudity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no the uh, sensuality in it is very much more of a hammer type sensuality right. uh, in the sense of lots of low you know low cleavage suggested things and stuff, but nothing right. you know a, sen- a sensuality as opposed to uh, you know like a real obviously open sexuality or you know so and I, and I think that's just fine. Uh, like I say, the film uh, it's not a, a great film in my estimation, but it is one that I've enjoyed. Uh, I've enjoyed going through it. <coughs> Uh, I've enjoyed going through it the past uh, the past two times I've gone through it to make my notes for this for the show, and it's a film that I can see myself returning to. I'd uh, I'd really like to see uh, a good release of this. Of course, we say this about so many of the films. <laughs> we say this so, about, about so many of the films that we cover here. Yeah. Uh, I would love to see a really good release of this, just to get a sense of um, even if there were no extras, just to see if there's a a better looking print of it out there. The print that we have that's out there is not bad looking at no. all. No, can't complain about this movie. I enjoyed it. I agree. I agree. I I uh, I enjoyed this movie too. I, I really did. Um, I just I agree with you about that. Yes, there are some pacing issues at times, but that does not translate into boring. You know, like like Elena said that her were probably she called it a very boring film, and I don't agree with that. I I, I did. I was never bored with it. You know, it's, it's, now I do I, I do agree that yes, there is a lot of of dialogue in the film. There are lots of people sitting around dinner tables and riding in carriages, you know, but there was yeah. never any point because what they were talking about and the legends, I found the legends so visually compelling and so fascinating to, you know, to listen to and the dialogue was good enough that uh, it didn't affect me. I think I, you know, the last film we did, The Murderers Among the Thirteen, we had that 15-minute dialogue scene that I, I admitted got a little bit too much, you know, for me. There was times when, you know, when I, I, I that I, I did feel it was it had gone far enough, you know, that needed to end. Whereas in this film, uh, none of the uh, I never felt that along the way, you know. So so the pacing, I do agree that yes, it could be trimmed a little bit. One of the things, one of the questions I had going in this film was was wondering like with John Gilling directing, was it going to seem was it going to seem more evoke more of a Hammer film or a European film, Spanish film? And it's very much it's more of a Spanish film, not just the fact that it's filmed there, but I think that. Uh, that he sort of, I think, kind of, it seems to me like he did kind of embrace the their style of filmmaking, their look of their films, you know, the uh, it doesn't feel as studio-bound as most Hammer films did. I love Hammer films, but, I mean, this feels very much like a European horror film. I love the the way, some of the lighting that you mentioned, you know, some of the, it almost uh, looks, uh, some of it has almost kind of Baba-type colors in certain scenes, you know, in some certain Especially gels the they end, use. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, so I like that. Uh, and, you know, we mentioned the, we uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast that we had a uh, 
return of uh, one of our compo- one of the composers that's Angela uh, uh, right. Artiga, uh, uh, if that's how to pronounce his name, I think, <laughs> but uh, who's uh, did music for I think Car Rises from the Tomb and many other things. Uh, right. Excellent composer. And I like the music in this film was good, um, but uh, yeah, I am. Um, I th- I thought the film, you know, like I said again, I was not bored by it. I I, I thought it had some some nice. It just it had a good gothic feel to it. I I love the way the legends were intertwined with the actual plot. Yeah. I like the main characters, the interplay between the the writer and and his his and, and his girl, his female companion. You know, is his uh, uh friend slash kind of lover. You know, Maria or whatever. Yeah. You know, and uh, thought that was really good. And again, we talked about how. Uh, you know, Nashy would have been good in the role of Del Rio, but the guy playing him just is does so well. All the actors He's really very do. Good. So I gave it a uh, I gave it a really solid seven. You know, was my ranking on it. And that's uh, exactly where I fell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would like to see. I would love to see a, a a really nice release of it. I'd love to see a better print of it. And it does disappoint me that Nashy did not get to be involved with it because I, it's a film that I would have liked to have seen as part of his, you know, as part of his repertoire, as part of his. His his uh, uh you know his his, as part, list of his, of resume, films. his part of his resume. I would have liked to have seen it. I think he uh, because yeah, I, I'm I'm sorry that it was not that it's not one that that that's his part of, that he didn't get to to play a part in. So. Well, one of the things that I wonder is whether or not um, the fact that he did not get to make this film is the reason that he wrote the script for Inquisition. I can because see that definitely. Yeah, as as influenced by um, Witchfinder General and Mark mm-hmm. of the Devil mm-hmm. as. Uh, Inquisition is mm-hmm. uh, one wonders if that you know he may still have been interested enough in that type of story to to make Inquisition but I wonder if the two films uh, you know the, the disappointment with this led to that or not could be very possibly very and possibly. Uh, you know, who knows because he got to he got to kind of play around in that same area mm-hmm. and uh, but in a, but in a much more pointed way I mean there you know we there, there's no uh, legends he's not playing with uh, you know that that wonderful poet's stories and ideas, but same kind of feel, same kind of time period, same yeah. kind of. Uh, yeah. I don't know. There, there's a, there's a similar feel. Well, it's interesting you bring it up. That makes me think because it reminds me also the Inquisition was also his first film as a director. It's possible the experience of this pushed him more into pushing himself more to like, damn it, I'm going to just direct these things, and then I'll then I'll definitely get to be a part of him. You know, maybe, maybe so. Although know? from what I understand, having learned uh, the past couple of years, he uh, originally wasn't going to be the director of Inquisition, and maybe that is another indicator sure. that you know moving in that direction is something yeah. that he thought was something that he had to do. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting. We both end up with a uh, giving the film a seven, which means that we obviously like it a good deal more than Elena. Yeah, yeah, we do, we do. So. Um, I, I, I wonder if it is that um, there is a very negative feeling toward the film, basically because of how Nashi was pushed out of the pro- pushed out of the production, yeah. or uh, if there. Uh, I wonder. I wonder if that's the main reason, or if there's something deeper or stranger going on there. Um, or whether people just, for whatever reason, don't like the film. Like I say, I, my mm-hmm. my complaints with it are fairly minor. Mm-hmm. But um, maybe I, people, maybe more, maybe what getting back to what we talked earlier that you know that you know it's definitely not the most action action packed film. We didn't actually get to the the best action scene in the film. We didn't get to actually talk about. But no, no, no it's, but, it's and wonderful. It's, and there's not you know there's not the there's not the the levels usual levels of of of, of gore and overtly you know, frightening images and things like that. And right. maybe people just kind of feel after they've seen a lot of Nashi films, they go this and they kind of, 
that they just kind of feel like there's a dearth there of that kind of material that they prefer to see that they're used to from European horror films, maybe. But but that's that's odd because the the way I would describe this film is as a gothic, and as mm, yeah. a gothic, it has all those things in oh, place. Oh, it definitely has. It, it, it definitely it has, has in all spades elements, all the so. things you want. You know, ghost castles. You know, uh, <laughs> all those all those things. <laughs> so uh, I guess that is uh, that's the cross the devil. Yeah, yeah. So we'll take a break here and we'll come back and jump into the, uh, the correspondences and stuff. Yeah, we got quite a bit to cover here. So, yeah, we'll be back in just a moment with the mailbag. Why not enjoy some delicious California crispy pizza? It's made with the original crispy pizza crust, our exclusive pizza sauce, a pinch of salt, a touch of Parmesan grated cheese, mozzarella cheese, a little oregano, and into the oven it goes. And presto, a delicious pizza. What'll it be, folks? Cheese or sausage? Why not enjoy some delicious California crispy pizza now? Time to dive into the mailbag for this episode. Quite a bit of correspondence to get to this time around. Everybody seems to want to write us now. Yeah, I love it. I have no complaints. But yeah. first of all, as I announced at the beginning of the episode, we have a new feature coming to the show this episode. Uh, this will apparently be a regular thing each month. Uh, Dan is promising us that he is going to contribute uh, an audio piece to us each time around, he says he's going to try like to keep it. Kind of, kind of, kind of. Yeah, exactly. He uh, has decided that since uh, I can't seem to remember his emails, he'll just send us an MP3 file. <laughs> that, I like it. Let me take the opportunity to point out that anybody can send in an MP3 uh, yes. file if they want. Uh, talking, uh, talking to us instead of writing to us. Mm-hmm. We don't mind. It's all good in our book. So uh, let's get to our first installment of this, uh, this piece that he is calling It's Dan O'Clock. Which, no, you know, if like you don't it. like the name, you need to talk to Dan, not me. Uh, so this is, uh, this is Dan's first installment, our man in the field talking to us directly. Hello everyone, Dan here. I uh, just want to fill you in on what's going on. Uh, about a month ago, I wrote Rad and Troy about the Jungle Queen episode, and for some reason or another it got left out. Um, they do have a lot of their plates, the casters. So Rad wrote me and apologized, and so I said, okay, well, here's what we can do. Let's make lemonade here. How about I just send in an MP3? That might be fun. And Rad said, well, that would be great. Uh, could you maybe do that every cast? And I thought about it and I was like, well, as long as I got stuff to say, then maybe I can do that. So <clears throat> here we are. 
Um, let's go ahead and uh, get to my original letter, shall we? Guys, I didn't think that at all about Kilma when she had the bird. You guys had said that um, you didn't understand why death puzzled her. My first thought is that she had not seen death by bullets. She'd seen death by arrows and by other weapons like knives, probably knives and swords. But she had not seen death by bullets. Now, she might have seen death by bullets when her father was killed on the plane, but that might have been way too traumatic for her to remember, so maybe she blocked that out. To the nice lady who wrote for the mailbag, some honorable horror host mentions um, are as follows. The first one is Mr. Lobo and his cinema insomnia. His fans are called Sinsomniacs, and uh, that'll also be mentioned in the song that I'm going to be playing here in a little bit. Um, he had a posting frenzy up on YouTube for a while, posted a ton of his old episodes from the show. Unfortunately, Google and him had uh, kind of a Lockhorns battle on copyrights on certain things that he had posted in the show. So there was a couple, so, uh, a couple episodes that got the sound turned off. So he basically gave up and uh, took everything down. The only thing left is this song. This song is phenomenal. Um, it's probably the best pop song ever written. Um, it also has Ron Dante from the Archies singing the song. It just captures the whole Saturday morning TV vibe. Um, if you fire it up on YouTube, it looks like the banana splits. It looks like, you know, 1968 Hanna-Barbera at its best. Um, you know, Scooby-Doo, Banana Splits, Land of the Lost, you know, that whole, that whole group of shows that we all grew up watching. So anyway, uh, I'm going to go ahead and play the song for you. Um, the song is called I'm Watching TV by, Mr. by the Mr. Lobo Experience. Say that one more time. Not as excited. <laughs> I'm Watching TV by the Mr. Lobo Experience. TV. I'm watching TV. 
Excellent song. I could listen to that song a million times. Time is running short here, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, sign out. Um, just to let you know, next month, Elena had sent me some DVDs, some Paul Nashi uh, Velovision collection DVDs. It's basically the entire set of the restoration DVDs. Um, I'll go ahead and unbox those and go through that. And um, I, I do work for... Elena on her website, Horizons from Spain, as well as the new site, Spanish Fear. So that's why I got the DVDs in the mail. Um, she's been just an angel when it comes to this kind of thing. So gladly share this with everybody. Also, part two of the horror host, Dr. Gangrene, they're from Nashville. Uh, real name is Larry Underwood. And uh, he's definitely somebody I wanna, wanna, wanna do a touch on as far as good horror hosts. So. Uh, we'll do that next next time as well. You guys have a great time. Toast to Rod and Troy. Have a good cast. And uh, I will be back next month. All for 101 for Paul. This is Dan signing out. Oh, man. Cool stuff. That that was an incredible song. I, <laughs> I do love that song. That's awesome. He's, yeah. he's right about being able to listen to it a million times. Because oh, yeah. it's yeah, really stuff. catchy. Mm -hmm. And it is, uh, it is the epitome of what I love about... Um, a certain type of pop music. Honestly, that song sounds like it could have been done by uh, one of my favorite bands from uh, about 20 years ago um, that I'm now going to completely play. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that's just... Well, I thought it kind of had a Weird Al vibe to it, no, you know, and I, which is a great compliment to know. Well, that's, yeah, that's the, I, I, I can see that. I can't believe I'm blanking on this band. They only got two albums out. And the second one was called Spilt Milk. Mm -hmm. Oh, my Lord, this is terrible. And by the way, anyone who knows Dan should not be too surprised that his segment starts off with a bit of hair metal there. And also, uh, that, that is, uh, I True. think, out of all the many musics he likes, that is the one that's dearest to his heart is some good old, good old heavy metal. The, the band it reminds me of is it, is it sounds very much like it could have been a song done by Jellyfish. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, two excellent albums before the band went, uh, went tits away. Up. <laughs> tits up. The way of the dodo. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that song. And uh, 
yes, yes, Dan, uh, I, I can see I can see what you're possibly talking about with Kilma and the bird. Uh, but it just seemed a little odd that a woman would reach that age and, and not have encountered a dead bird. Yeah, that's kind of um, what we were looking at was like she's never seen death before. And I see what he's saying. Like he's she's not she doesn't understand the power of the uh, man-made bullet. She understands natural death, but not. Which makes sense. I can yeah, see that. I can, I can see, see that yeah, aspect yeah. of it pretty easily. Mm-hmm. We're and, not uh, saying we agree. We're just saying that <laughs> we might be wrong. Uh, and two things. Yes, again, let's uh, let's once again point people to uh, Spanish Fear, the yeah, the, yeah, new, the new Spanish horror website that uh, Dan is involved with, along with Elena, uh, a place to get uh, any and all information about uh, new and or old Spanish horror films, which is a, a good thing. And they definitely uh, they also alert people to our podcasts, so we can't uh, complain about that. No, and we look forward to your next segment, Dan. Uh, looking forward to hearing how those DVDs turned out, and also uh, the word what you have to say about our good friend uh, Larry Underwood slash Doctor Gangreen. Yep, yep. Uh, spent a lot, spent a lot of night and downed a lot of beers with Larry Underwood over the years. Oh yeah, we've even been in, in we've even been in some of his episodes and uh, boy, and oh, that's true. That's been a, filming sessions oh, of that's, uh, that's uh, been a long time, but yeah, that's true that we have. Yeah. <laughs> Wow, we do. We should collect some of those, we do. We should we? collect some of those and send them to Dan and Elena. They'd get a kick out of them. I think. I don't know that I have any of them. I would have to do some hunting. Yeah. Wow, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The good old Doctor Gangrene, our buddy Larry, is uh, is always always yeah. a fun time. Oh yeah. All right. Well, let's. Uh, how do we? I tell you what. You you go with uh, you go with one, and then okay. uh, we'll go from there. All right. I'm going to read from the mail back here. This is from uh, first time we heard from Blaze was uh, last time. It was last episode, and he uh, uh, we mentioned his. Uh, uh, terrific uh, uh, blog that he does and uh, he's uh, written now again he says uh, hey guys thank you for reading my email on your podcast and for the kind words about my blog it was above and beyond any response I may have hoped for and deeply appreciated I enjoyed your latest episode although I've not seen the film there was, he's talking about the murderers among the, the 13, 13 yeah. the respect you give to the films you discuss and to the community that shares your interest is exceptional that is why I said you are a class act. You take these films very much on their own terms, and that is rare. Not to say some things aren't just too funny to let pass. You have just that right amount of that, too. You can talk about spaghetti westerns anytime you want, as far as I'm concerned, because I just enjoy hearing you guys take on the movies we all love. Who has amassed the most knowledge on one subject or another is irrelevant. I, I may know some spaghetti westerns, but you have easily you easily have me beat on the Spanish horror front, and I can tell you guys don't see it as any more of a contest than I do. Rod, I'm going to watch Blackthorn on your recommendation. It has been in my Netflix streaming queue for some time, along with dozens of other films I may never watch because I just don't have time. Ha! Yeah. I'm, yeah, we all know that feeling. <laughs> I know that feeling, man. I'm already building a list of films to see based on your podcast. Dracula's Great Love is near the top since the director did so well on Hunchback and since you guys and Tim Lucas had such good things to say about it. The scene I mentioned about some criminal type falling downstairs in Saga of the Draculas was definitely in that specific film, Somewhere in the middle or towards the end, but I remember very little about about it other than thinking at the time, boy, these Spanish horror films sure do have a lot of violent crime in between the monster stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's true. yeah, it's true. yeah. The monsters don't have to do all the heavy lifting in these films, that's for sure. Uh, he says definitely need to watch that one again. Outside of any point I was trying to make, I just remember really loving that movie. What you guys said about Euro horror having human brutality that is often as bad or, or worse. Then the uh, supernatural horror in the film made me think of Lucio Fulci too. It seems like the uh, yeah, like the power drill to the head in Gates of Hell. <laughs> That's one of the all-time yeah. gratuitous "what the hell" kind of moments. And that, I was that, just... <laughs> that still stands out to me as one of the one of the moments in Euro horror where you just have to look at the screen and go. What in the f- this this sequence <laughs> yeah. has nothing to do with the supernatural goings on. 
they just knew that they could pull this sequence and, off and decided to put it up, put it in the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's almost where Lucio was looking at his watch and thinking, uh, "We've been five minutes since our last gore thing. We need something to happen here." You know, <laughs> somebody, somebody hold, yeah. hold that actor down and ram a drill, <laughs> ram a through, drill his through his head. Yeah, <laughs> John, poor John Morgan. Yeah, it's like, and the oh, and he mentions here the nailing to the wall followed by the acid bath of the beginning of the Beyond. I, that was cracked me up too. Yeah. It's just like the villagers are, you know outraged by this corrupt painter's evil doings and so they decide the best way to punish him is to first nail him up christ-like against the wall and then we'll just fix this whole nice pot of acid and pour it on him you know because uh-huh. we're the good guys you know i love that <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, the, we're the godly people yeah we're gonna punish we're gonna this, this, we're gonna this, punish this painter who's obviously disturbed because he's painted some horrific images here so yeah um he says, I have an extraneous VHS copy of Rafael Romero Merchant's excellent Spanish spaghetti western, Dead Men Don't Count, in English. He said, that I will happily give you if you want to privately give me a snail mail address and if you have the means to play VHS. If not, I will see about making you guys more technologically up-to-date copies of a couple of these, which I will do anyway. It will just take longer because I'm in the process of giving myself this capability. Thanks again for the kind words and for reading my email. Sincerely, Blaze. He says, P.S. You pronounce my name right, just like Modesty Blaze. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. See, okay, we occasionally do get an odd name. Well, okay, I'm not going to call it an odd get, yeah. name. But we do get a name that is uh, like non-standard. Wait, wait, mm-hmm. John, Troy, Bill, yeah, right. Fred. We do yeah. get those. Sometimes we get those names right. Yeah, yeah. A stopped clock is right one, twice a day. <laughs> twice a day, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, no, it's cool. It's uh, And I like what he said earlier about the fact is like, yeah, you know, it's not a, you know, no one wants to get into a pissing contest if I know more about a certain genre than oh, you. Because to be honest with you, I don't ever want to know everything about it, anything. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's I don't ever want to still be able to learn yeah, about Yeah, I don't ever want to be considered an expert on anything. You know, it's like, I'd like to think that even the, the subjects that I've devoted much of my life to studying still have more to teach me, still have more that I don't know. I love running into somebody who knows something I don't about it. So, yeah. Oh, I definitely, yeah. definitely. I don't mind. I would love to be. I would. I would say I'm a little different from that. I would say, well, actually, I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't mind being known as an expert in certain subjects, but just because you're an expert doesn't mean you know every damn thing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, hey, mm-hmm. how much have we learned about Spanish horror and Paul oh Nash since we started this damn podcast? Oh yeah, yeah. It's, and at the time, we thought, hey, I've read his autobiography. Yeah, and hey, I've read I'm several really interviews. Right, yeah. I know what the I'm fuck qualified I'm doing. To do this. I'm like, qualified no. to hit record and tell the world <laughs> you know, about I, these films. Hell, we even thought we had seen enough of his films to kind of have a line on what we knew about him. But how much we found out just about him through his film, just through watching the films, like, wow, yeah. okay, so so many of our preconceptions. Oh, I know. Or were like based on certain, but they weren't as prevalent. All the things that we thought we were going to just see over and over again in his films. A lot right. of times, half the times he's contradicting. I think us, the you know. I think the overarching storyline of our of our podcast for the first year was mm. okay. So that broad overarching statement that I made early. Mm. What. Well, Seems to be bullshit, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I think I may have been a fucking card. I think I'm an idiot. All right, your turn. Oh, oh okay, okay, okay. So um, this is this month's message from uh, Mark, our, our beloved friend, who, who now writes us every month, and we thank him for it, of course. He says, Hey, gents, many thanks for NashyCast 47. The Killer is Among the 13 certainly sounds like fun. It has a great cast and an interesting director, but my God, it sounds confusing. <laughs> also confusing was the thunder on the soundtrack of the podcast. <laughs> I was listening to this on a sunny day, and I didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> yeah, that was an that unexpected was, right. edition. We were, yeah. That was an unexpected addition to mm-hmm. the audio you mm-hmm. were listening to. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he says, It was good to hear one of your listeners mention the discovery of some presumed missing Doctor Who episodes. Whilst I'm not a particular fan of the Doctor, I'd be interested to see what else turns up in this stash. Obviously, the BBC have trashed many thousands of hours of programming in the past, having a legacy of missing episodes and, in many cases, entire series. I remember reading a biography on Peter Cook being a fan of UK TV comedy. I'm guessing you probably know who Peter Cook is, but just in case you don't, he did a lot of work with Dudley Moore in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, just to stop here for a second, I know who Peter we Cook is. We know and revere Peter Cook, yes, yes. So don't worry about that. Um, he and Dudley Moore's parody on the uh, Thunderbirds is still one of the most ingenious <laughs> things I've ever seen. Uh, I think just, that's just up destroys on me. It is. Yeah. It destroys me every time. It's just wonderful. Uh, <laughs> He says, there's a story in the book where he finds, or Peter Cook finds out that the BBC are about to destroy many episodes of Not Only But Also, a TV series that he made with Dudley Moore. He asks the BBC if he can buy the episodes from them, but the BBC say no, citing some ridiculous company policy or other, and the episodes are trashed. I can't imagine how difficult Jesus and frustrating Christ. this must have been for him. It's like working for the, re- it's like restaurants that, 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 have to throw away the food instead of the, the, the extra food instead of letting their employees like take it take home it with home, them. You know, man. it's just geez. He says it's like watching somebody burn your home movies. <laughs> man, oh, man, I cannot imagine what that must have been like. Yeah. He says, Rod, uh, not sure if you're any closer to solving the Blanca Estrada Eva Miller conundrum. Uh, well, we are a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. If you Google Blanca Estrada and look at the images, I'm pretty sure you'll recognize the face. She has fairly large roles in Ghost Galleon and Candle for the Devil. She's also in that excellent turd, Mystery on Monster Island. <laughs> Speaking of J.P. Simon. Yeah, that's right. Uh, while she's definitely not in the same, she's definitely not the same woman who played Kilma. There's nothing to say that she didn't use the pseudonym Eva Miller in some of her films, and anything is possible in Euro cinema. Well, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, Elena uh, pointed out that they're that they're cousins, right. which helps a whole lot. Yes, it did. Troy, glad you finally got around to watching all the Friday the Thirteenth films. What took you so long? <laughs> Agree with much of what was said. I was also surprised to find Part Nine so much fun, and yes, Part Eight is definitely the worst in the series. Part Five is also bad, but it's supremely bad, and as such, is always worth a watch. Yes, part five is miserably bad, but it is in bad. Yeah. It is bad in such a hideous exploitation <laughs> film way that right. it's. it's mm-hmm. I won't say it's like watching a car crash, mm-hmm. but it is kind of like watching someone totally fuck up, but in a way that's entertaining on its own. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah yeah. <clears throat> he says, "I must also say that I found the remake to be pretty decent." See, I I didn't I think the seen it yet, so. I didn't think the remake was a bad film. I just thought that. It didn't bring anything to it that did that that made it special or made mm-hmm. it stand out. Mm-hmm. And if you line all the Friday the Thirteenth films up, it's the one with the least flavor, the mm-hmm. least the, like even the bad ones have more of just like a yeah. spark of at least nuttiness of nothing else there. Yeah, know? and and I can't call it a, a terrible movie. I mean, it, it's a fairly straightforward slasher that kind of uh, kind of rams together the first two films. Part, you know the first one in part two in in a way, and then puts its own spin on it. But I, I, I it didn't do anything for me. I, I watched it in the theater, and it was just kind of like, eh, you know, it's mm-hmm. like for me, it's it's one of those movies that you just have to look at and you go, that's eh, about a five out of ten. Mm-hmm. It really didn't have a pulse mm-hmm. for me. Okay, so eh, there are always opinions. Mm-hmm. Mine is just as informed and is and is intriguing as anyone else's. Uh, <laughs> Back to back to Mark. He says, uh, "There's more great releases to tempt the walled, <laughs> the walled, 
Oh, God, now I'm mispronouncing. He says, there's more great releases to tempt the wallet this side of Christmas. Blue Underground are releasing a guilty pleasure double bill of Hell of the Living Dead and Rats, Night of Terror. I already got it on order. <laughs> oh, God. I, okay, I, I already have both those films. I've, I've watched yeah. them so many times. I've watched Night, Rats, Night say, of Terror. I haven't seen so Rats. I'm looking forward to that. I, I love Hell of the oh. Living Dead, which is not to say it's a good movie at all, but okay. it's just so okay. crazy. Well, let's be honest. Yeah. What we did with Nightmare City... Yeah. It, you would could, probably be worth it to do Rats Night of Terror the same I bet, way. I can imagine. It really would be. That yeah. is a that is a an amazingly terrible film. Mm. It's so bad, it does loop around and become not good. It's not good. It's mm. phenomenal. <laughs> it's so psychotic. The Hell of the Living uh, Dead is a classic example of why the Italian ripoffs of American or successful films are so entertaining is because they think they're making a ripoff, and they are. But they're still so twisted in the way they go about them that it still ends up being its own individual and entertaining self. I mean, Hell of the Living Dead begins beat by beat like you're just, oh my God, this is just Dawn of the Dead for the yeah. first. But by about 20 minutes in the movie, it's then gone off in its own crazy universe and it still thinks it's being a rip. It still thinks it's, no, it's, 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 it's Dawn of the Dead. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hell of the Living Dead. There's a there's a point in Hell of the Living Dead when you're being inundated with animal stock footage, yeah. and you realize they don't have a clue what animals exist where this story takes <laughs> exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep waiting for a close up of kittens playing with a ball of yarn. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, what the fuck is happening next? <laughs> no, it's like we're the penguins, you know. It's just like yeah, just, <laughs> there's penguins on an ice floe. Throw <laughs> yeah. that throw that stock footage in there too. Makes just as much fucking sense as what you're showing us now. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Oh God! Okay, yeah, we we may have to think about think very seriously yeah. about doing rats, not a terror yeah. for the for the bloody pit. He says there's also a double bill of Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror, for which unfortunately Factor. has just been pushed back. I found out today, oh, has it? Now, okay. to December, so yeah, it's, uh, okay. so yeah, going to wait a little bit longer for that one. He says hopefully they'll find an uncut print of Vault this time around. I agree. They, well, I think that's. The I think plan. that I, I think there's. I think they've specifically said that they that they have done so. Yeah, it's got so. people pretty excited about that one. Uh, and also Eurocrime, uh, the documentary about uh, European crime films, yeah. is coming out. That uh, he says that uh, I flagged on the bloody pit a long, a long while back. I put the, mm -hmm. the YouTube trailer up about that. Right. Um, he says it's getting released in September. Uh, better start saving now, folks. <laughs> <laughs> He's all the best, Mark. Yeah. Um, the well, we were just talking off air about a little bit about how excited we are about the uh, the two overlooked Romero films, The Dark Half and Monkey Shines, are going yeah, to be coming Spring out. Factory's coming Spring out. Spring Factory's doing yeah. Blu-rays of those. They're coming out with uh, Dolls. They're of course they're doing Nightbreed, the uncut Nightbreed. Oh, I can't wait to, to Nightbreed. I've been just, waiting for Nightbreed since yeah. Barker told me about it himself in the mm -hmm. freaking what was it ninety six. Yeah. Yeah. Good, I was like, oh, yeah, good about stuff. freaking time. And uh, I'll just address what he, he kind of asked in there, what basically his basic question of what took me so long with the Friday the 13th. And honestly, I can say that about a lot of, I've kind of made the plan to over the, as over these next few years, you know, I'm, I'm not going to hurry myself through it by any means, but I, I am going to try and catch up on a lot of these multi-chapter franchise because I really haven't, very, you know, most of them I haven't seen all of, you know, I've, now I've seen all the Phantasms and I've always enjoyed those Oh yeah. because you know from the first those aren't going to make any sense story-wise. I mean, you know, they're just, I mean, not since you can tell, I mean, not in the sense that you can't tell what's going on, but in the sense of like the overall universe there, I mean, it's kind of like this well, continual twists, thing, twists that twist that he plays with and you know that from the first and I found all those films 
to some degree or other to be very enjoyable. I love them, yeah. So, um, but with most of your other major horror franchise, um, I think I just, you know, when the slasher genre first started, I, um, uh, I was, I was, I, like most everyone else have been in horror, it was something new we hadn't seen as far as the levels of gore and yeah. violence. And you got into it and very quickly and, and watched all this stuff and then you burn out on it real quickly too. Most of us did anyway. Well, and the know, genre it's, burns it's, itself out almost yeah. as fast. And after and and after watching a couple after going, you know, watching a couple of sequels of each one of these franchises and being pretty disappointed with them, I just kinda of dropped out altogether. It didn't become important to me to make sure that I, you know, it, it felt that you know, that even as a great horror fan it's my duty to see every one of these chapters just to say I've seen them. But now that I've got a few years on it and I can go back and now and watch them and I kind of enjoy even the bad ones in just a sense of they evoke a certain time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I, a couple of years ago, I watched all the uh, the um, Hellraisers and I'm still reeling from that. As well. Oh, my, oh my God. Because I think I went, I thought, because I, I only had only seen the first two. Those, and, are, those are the good ones. Yes, and I was like, okay, I think there's a couple more. And there was nine of them. And I was like, oh my God, where'd all these come from? And so... The main main overlying theme I found with that is that they all seem to find interesting ideas for a place to start off with, and then to totally and then like, fuck it all and up. To totally fuck it all up. Yeah, it's you know, so so those were those were yeah those were rough to get through. But uh, I think next I'm going to do the Nightmare on Elm Streets because the the I uh, just got that found a good price on getting that uh, I actually got that Blu-ray collection that has them all in it, okay. and because I've only seen. The first one, the second one, and the new Nightmare, which I really enjoyed. I, you know, really I, like, I like new Nightmare a lot. So yeah. I haven't seen you. So those are the only three that I've seen. I'm going to do those. Um, as far as the Halloweens, now this may surprise you, but I literally have only seen. Uh, of course, I've seen part three, which is not the Michael Myers. I've the Michael Myers films. I've only seen the first two. I've never seen any of the others. So I'm going to do. Uh, stop while you're. You should. Is that really shouldn't delve in further? <laughs> well, here's the thing. For years, mm. a lot of people tried to defend and talk uh, about uh, the fourth one as mm. being uh, a good film. Mm. And uh, I will say this: the first few minutes of the fourth film are very interesting, with a, a wonderful opening credit sequence that's very evocative. Mm-hmm. Um. It's got an interesting idea, but it's mm-hmm. not a good film. The fifth mm-hmm. one is even worse. The really? sixth one, the sixth one is ridiculously silly, and it has two different edits, both of which suck. Yeah. Um, I can give credit to H two O, the one where they got that where they ignored, Lee Curtis came yeah, back, and yeah, where they they just ignored everything mm-hmm. after the second film. They ignored the fourth, fifth, sixth film, and mm-hmm. they did um, uh, Halloween H two O, which was a direct sequel to the first two movies, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty good film. Uh, I think the, the 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 right. I think the very end of it is a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to go along with it. Uh, then the direct sequel to that uh, sucks pretty hard. Basically, just stick with the first two. H two O is worth seeing in my opinion, but it's never going to be something that you return to much right. at all. Yeah, and uh, it's just a damn disaster area, really. Um, it if I had to, I mean the most. It, the Hellraiser sequels all suck, except mm. for the second one. I enjoy the second one. Mm. Um, good Lord. I, I, a few years ago, I went through the Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street films. Uh, the first one's amazing. I think the third one is a good, solid film. Mm. That's the, what I've heard. The, I've heard. The second one is terrible, but it's terrible in an incredibly interesting it, way. Yes, it is. It is. I agree with that. Um, yeah. it, it's... Uh, the rest Once again, of the, because it was terrible at the time, I saw it was one I never went... Yeah. Past that, until they did New Nightmare, because the premise of that sounded so interesting, yeah. and it was a good movie. You know, yeah. New, New Nightmare is good, but four, five, six, uh, all, all the other all nightmares, all the all the other Nightmare on Elm Street. So they, 
they they took they took the wrong lessons from the original film and just ran with it. Sad to say, yeah. and turned him into essentially a stand up comedy, a stand up comedian and, with with knives. And, and that was a big thing that drove me away from from the whole Freddy Krueger character. Is he just yeah. he just lost that kind of menacing edge that he had from the first one and just became a, a just a comic character, became just yeah. a wisecracking. And that was that was the tough you know thing about that. But I think I think. And I never, I haven't seen the new Nightmare on Elm Street. I don't, not really all that interested in it. Maybe good. I, I hear it's terrible. I'm gonna yeah. have to eventually watch it if I can ever. If it ever pops up on Netflix, I'll push play. Yeah. And after the disaster that was Rob Zombie's first Halloween film, I've not seen the second <laughs> one. I don't know that I ever will. But it's probably, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite things in the world is to listen to people defend, defend the Rob Zombie the Halloween, Halloween films. Yeah. Uh, that is one of the most entertaining things to hear people try to defend. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's almost amazing because some of them are actually aware. Some of them are completely unaware. Or, or just mm-hmm. not self-aware enough mm-hmm. to realize that some of the things they're saying don't mm-hmm. add up, mm-hmm. and so. It, but it's really fun to hear the people who are for. They seem like they're forcing themselves to to, to like the damn movies mm-hmm. for some reason, uh, out of some allegiance to Rob, Rob Zombie. Zombie or I don't Rob know. Can do no wrong and, or yeah, or whatever. And and it, it, it's really funny to occasionally listen to one of these one of these people defending it, and then talk themselves into a corner, and then try to find some way to talk themselves out of the corner when they realize that something that they've just contradicted themselves about something some mm. some quality they find <laughs> impressive about the film and um it's they're, they're both terrible yeah. they're both amazingly terrible the most fun i've ever had is watching two people who really loved his halloween 2 talk about just talk amongst themselves about why it was so good and it was it was kind of like watching a mathematical a mathematical creation that that folds in upon itself and proves mm. that it, it proves <laughs> that its own premise can't exist it was amazing it was yeah. a tr- truly amazing because uh, I saw both those films in the theater and holy god uh, I would suffer through um, any of the other Halloween sequels before I ever watched either of those movies again mm. because they are and I use this term mm. I use this term <laughs> specifically mm. for its vulgarity they're clusterfucks no, I mean I, well they, I certainly agree that first uh, one was I mean that's my gosh it was awful uh, Anyway, that's, well, the, we've gone off into Yeah, it. we have. And to sum up real quick, I think we're both, what we're establishing here is that really Phantasm has probably been the most satisfying of all these franchises oh, as far yes. as consistently being good and solid, entertaining yeah. films. Um, and uh, and uh, I would say do not expect my uh, dissertation on the Children of the Corn franchise anytime soon. <laughs> I saw the first one. I don't think it's I watched terrible. the other. What is it? 25 or 6? 25 or 26 now? I don't there's, think I'll, uh, I don't think I'll so be watching many. those. So. I, picked, I picked up one direct video sequel to it a few years ago, well, two years ago, I think, for like three bucks on Blu-ray, and I was like, okay, yeah. three bucks, what the fuck? Yeah. I watched it, and it was just as bad as I assumed. I was like, <laughs> okay, well, I can trade this in and at least get my money back, yeah. you know, for yeah. this piece of crap. Yeah. No, no, the Howling franchise is pretty entertainingly awful as it goes on. Oh, that's That's true. one that's kind of fun to delve into. See, that would be one... Because Howling, cause the Howling, Howling 2, 2 is just an absolute Howling scream. A, it's, a, it's, it's a disaster of a film, and, and amusingly bad in that respect. Yeah. Uh, but I have to admit, I've not gone past the second one. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I was thinking it was the third one, the marsupials or whatever. I think that was like I hate to say it, but I I think that may have been like six or something. Or yeah, four? yeah. There's been quite a few of them, so that may be one of them I have to subject Ugh. myself to at some point. That's some so. shady crap. Ugh. So anyway, we've got to come to our last bit of mail here, and this is uh, from a new writer. Um, who uh, signs as K K R Joy? So I get uh, maybe that's a uh, uh, supposed to be read as Killer Joy or uh, Kill Kill, <laughs> Kill Joy, Joy or uh, but he says uh, uh, Rod Rod and Troy. I stumbled upon your Nashicast blog slash podcast site back 
few months ago and just finished listening to the last Nashi podcast this week. I can't express the joy and enthusiasm that has grown inside of me for Nashi's work because of your dedicated, honest, and sincere efforts reviewing the best and worst of the Masters films. The humor injected into each podcast is wholeheartedly welcome. Thanks to you guys, I've increased my personal Nashi DVD collection to 21 and counting. Wow. That's awesome. I've also found a great source for the unobtainable examples, the special antenna. The <laughs> werewolf and monster movies are my favorites, but I'm also drawn to other great exploitation works like the Time Traveler, or excuse me, like the Traveler, sorry, and Inquisition. That would be uh, El Comandante. Yes, El Comandante and Inquisition. Mr. Nashi truly nailed subject matter in his films that a lot of us crave but can't seem to find in today's low and high budget mediocre sci-fi and spy adventure films. I'm also a big fan of Jess Franco's monster and exploit- exploitative related material and of course the Hammer Horror masterpieces. In closing, the Nashi Musk will live on thanks to your podcast efforts as, as new fans discover the great Spanish horror created during Nashi's film span. Keep up the great work. I'll be listening. Well, thank you, K.R. Joy. Uh, we uh, thank you very much for those very kind words, and we really appreciate it. It's always exciting to, to you know, to think that that uh, that we've been actually a really major influence on somebody going out and seeing these films, which is what we wanted to do. I mean, that was would have been if we had stayed exactly. our, if we had had our if if we'd had a mission statement. What more could it be than just like we want to encourage do something that people listening to would be encouraged to go out there and 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 see this stuff and seek more of it. And uh, welcome to our. Our family here, please keep in touch with us. And uh, as you'll see, I'm sure you've seen from our side podcast, we do tackle the occasional uh, Jess Franco films as well. And I'm sure we have many more to come over the years. I would say uh, so. Yeah. Uh, we will not run out of Jess Franco films. We can be pretty certain of that. We'll, we'll be dead before we <laughs> long dead before we ever reach the, the bottom of that bucket. And by the way, I was about to, uh, uh, doing all this reading out loud, I was about to take a drink of water and look down a few minutes ago and Katie the cat was enjoying, uh, was helping herself to my <laughs> fountain of water there. So I've conceded that to, uh, to Katie there. Hope, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, oh well, Katie has at least not meowed or brushed her meowed into the microphone or brushed herself up against the microphone like she did last month. So <laughs> but she's, um, she's being very well behaved. <laughs> and so have you, our listeners, for sticking with us for so long. I know this was a long podcast, but we have had fun with it. And oh, I think uh, we're one, one more thing. Oh yes, yes right. Well, something one, else here, one other yes. thing. Oh, I I read out uh, comments from uh, listener Holger Haas uh, last month where he was commenting on our uh, Bloody Pit episode of, about uh, Nightmare City. Right. And uh, he, wrote, he wrote back to me and was just really happy because he didn't realize that I was going to do that because this mm-hmm. you know, was, was the Bloody Pit and not Nashi cast. And he, was, uh, he says, uh, Imagine my pleasant surprise when I discovered that you deemed my little Nightmare City comment worthy to be read out. Imagine my even bigger surprise when I noticed that you managed to properly pronounce my name. It was A-OK. Faultless. If you only knew how many people managed to mangle my name, yet someone who, in nearly 70 podcasts or thereabout, managed to mangle every single Spanish name ever, came clean with mine. <laughs> he says, kudos. Of course, you know what that means, don't you? Given that you have such an obvious flair for German names, you simply must create a, Kimmy, a Krimi special now for the Bloody Pit of Rod. Now, here's, the, here's where I get into the minutia of how to pronounce words. Is it Holger? you got to tell me. Is it creamy or creamy? Because I've heard it pronounced both ways. Mm-hmm. And creamy makes it sound like the juicy filling of a Twinkie. <laughs> I know. If I say I just keep pitching a big donut or something. Exactly. Like and it's like I don't want custard to squirt out at me when I'm trying mm-hmm. to enjoy a cool-ass movie. So mm-hmm. you got to tell me which is the correct way to pronounce said word. I have heard both. And if it's going to be creamy, I'm going to weep. So mm-hmm. I'll go with it. 
If it's the correct way, I will go with it. But, you will create it, and now that did be called Rod's Creamy Cast, and now and now Rod's <laughs> well, the Creamy I, Pit of Rod. I, I, yeah. I firmly believe that. Oh God, the, that's awful. That's terrible. Oh, Why the fuck did you say that? Oh, I, well, God. I said it before the image actually came to mind, and then I couldn't retract it. So sorry. Oh my God, sorry. <laughs> Troy, you may have just damaged me. That's, okay, okay, back back to Holger real fast yes, because please, I just wanted to say quickly. that. Uh, the reason I, it may be easier for an English speaker to pronounce German names is that, uh, much the same way I find it fairly easy to pronounce a lot of French, is that basically you just have to, uh, it's, it's the same sounds, you just have to, to hold your, uh, your, your tongue and lips in slightly stiffer ways to say mm-hmm. certain, certain German and French words. Oh yeah, because there's like somewhere you started at the back of your throat and somewhere you go at the front of you, know, right. it's like it's all about, you know, and we're just, you know, we're... You know, we're just not made to, to you know, yeah. we're just not brought up in this country to, you know, to pay any attention to how you say things. Whereas when you get to Spanish and Portuguese, you get into these sounds that just don't normally occur in English, and therefore it gets a little bit harder for us to relate to them, and, and we just yeah. haven't trained our, our mouths and tongues in ways to, to pronounce those sounds properly. So I think that's a good bit of it. Also, I think I'm just partial to German beer, and therefore, you know, after reading that many mm. labels through a beer haze over the years, just something that comes easy. <laughs> just a theory on my part. Yeah. Uh, well, I wrote back to him and said that I don't think I've mangled every Spanish name, just, you know, most. Yeah. You know, I think I've gotten at least 20% of those names right. And, uh, of course, your comments about Nightmare City were worth, were worth reading out, Holger. We love that stuff. And uh, if I felt more confident in my uh, knowledge about the Creamies or the Crimmies, uh I would have already done one. Uh, Holger wrote back to say that... Uh, well, if you ever need someone to guide you through the the crimmy maze, I'll point you in the right direction. So, I, I think can we see need now, to take him up on that. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, what will have to happen is that in one way or another, I'm going to have to end up doing a show with somebody. It's definitely not something I can do on my own uh, on those films or a couple of specific films. I don't know that that genre is pretty large too. It's not something that I would want. I would want to try to cover all of. I'm not going to bite off another Weissmuller sized chunk again. <laughs> but. Uh, that is something I'm, I think I'm going to have to mark down and say uh, 2015, some kind of uh, some kind of podcast on the Krimi films. So, cool, cool. Uh, at least one of them, possibly two of them, because well, I know that those had, are fun. Uh, yeah, and I understood. I understand there's no shortage of Edgar Wallace films either out there. I think there's a oh, whole no, ton of them. Not at all. Uh, if you've never experienced any of the uh, the German Krimi films, let me recommend them. They are a ton of fun. To start with uh, Room 13 or the College Girl Murders, or man, there's. God, there's easily a dozen to two dozen of the damn things that I've seen, and I think they're fantastic. But uh, I guess that will be the last bit of email. Yes, and believe that's it. And uh... I guess now we'll just say, uh, once again, if you want to write in to us, you can reach us at nashycast at gmail.com. You may type out your message, or you can just uh, ooh, record an MP3 and send it to us. Either will suffice, will make us very happy and make us feel as if you love us and wish to tell us your thoughts. Yes. Also, don't forget that it is possible to uh, donate to the podcast to help us defray the cost of uh, keeping this thing mm-hmm. up on servers. Uh, we It's not a huge outlay for the two of us, but it is uh, it is something that is a monthly cost for us to keep the podcast going. If you would like to donate to us, there's a donate button on both the Nashi Cast Blogspot page as well as the Bloody Pit of Rod. You can tap on that mm-hmm. and uh, throw a few bucks our way uh you don't have to but we will always be thankful to anyone who does and you can uh, go to our facebook page and like it if you haven't already and also use it as a chance to post up any kind of news spanish horror news nashy news nashy photos spanish horror photos 
whatever, you know, incriminating photos of yourself, you know, just throw them all up on our site there. It's a fair game. So. Exactly. Whatever floats your boat. <laughs> uh, now, uh, we've already laid out what we're going to be doing for the next couple of months, but we'll only let you in on uh, the next months right now. Mm. Troy, you have the correct pronunciation. We had to defer to yes, a Spanish we... speaker to figure this title <laughs> yes, out. Yes, this time we actually came up to the point where we couldn't even pronounce the title of the next film we were going to do. It's, it is a yes. Nashi film. Uh, not a whole lot is known about the title of next yes. month's film. Yes, okay. So, uh, basically, it's it's Commando, and then there was this word that we had no idea how to pronounce it, and so we checked with uh, Mistress Elaine, and she... Now, she could have just sat back and chortled and, and let us <laughs> dangling there and just laughed to hear us trying, because I don't know what we would have made of this word. But she did instead. She rescued us, and it is actually... The word is pronounced Chiquilla. So it is Commando Chiquilla, with its subtitle, uh, I'm assuming that's Death, Death of, a, of president, a President. Death of a President. And I think it is based on real events. I believe yeah. it's inspired by a real event. Um, my my understanding mm-hmm. is the, it, it is a bit of a docudrama around uh, an assassination attempt. Yeah, and we not only have Paul Nash in it, but as we mentioned earlier, Tony Isbert, or Isbear, who played uh, um, Indigo in the movie that we just reviewed tonight, right. Across the Devil, he's actually in it as well. And it's directed by a director we are familiar with, uh, which is... Uh, Jose uh, Jose Luis Madrid, uh, Madrid uh, who Madrid. is responsible for Seven Murders for Scotland Yard, The mm-hmm. Crimes of Patois, mm-hmm. and uh, about uh, twenty other films as well. Yeah. So, so that's going to be a fun one. Ghost has like a little bit of a political thriller there, and uh, we're going to go into that. And it's from it's from nineteen seventy six, so mm-hmm. it's uh, in the seventies sweet spot, which is mm-hmm. fun, always yeah. fun. So episode forty eight will be Commando Chiquilla. And uh, that will be our September episode. The October episode is uh, going to be another Beyond Nashy episode. And I think we just go ahead, oh, let's go ahead and announce it now. It's, yeah, it's, a, film, yeah. it's a film that uh, a good number of people know about, but others just might need to be clued into. It's a, a, a film directed by a Spaniard, uh, but filmed and set in England, mm-hmm. which actually isn't all that much of a shock for Spanish mm-hmm. horror film anyway. Right. <laughs> Or, or a film yeah. of, of any type of the genre mm-hmm. that we're talking about here. But this is a film that is much beloved by me and is absolutely fantastic from stem to stern, available on DVD and Blu-ray here in the States. It is The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. Yep, and like really looking forward to watching that again to, to do this. It's a, it is a very, very good film. So next month, uh, another Nashi film, Commando Chiquilla. There you go. Uh, the Death of a President. And then the month after that, we'll be diving into a Beyond Nashi on The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. So there you go. More information than you normally get about our plans for the future. <laughs> so folks, once again, thank you. If you, uh, get us, uh, if you get this podcast through iTunes, please feel free to go over and rate us, uh, write a review for us. That makes the podcast much more visible to people who are just searching around for uh, odd podcasts mm-hmm. um if you if you if you'd like a cat we have a few uh <laughs> both rod and i have have a couple of cats we'd as, be happy to as, as katie paws her way through things on the desk yeah <laughs> so while we have kept the cat uh way wrapped up we will let you folks go while i go over here and figure out what the hell she wants thank you very much for listening i am rod barnett i'm troy gwen and we will see you again soon